Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 201 Invasion The boy was dressed in a faded yellow tunic with sweat stains, panted his way up the steep flight of stairs of stone steps before he nimbly climbed up the wooden ladder and took a second to catch his breath. He gazed out at the far distance over the fort walls and saw the dark blue squares of infantry appearing over the summer crops, trampling the unharvested yellow fields of grain down. Wake the fort! The elderly sentry yelled below him. Hurry! A tingle of dread, fear, and excitement ran down his spine as he reached under the bronze bell hanging at the watchtower and grabbed the wooden rod tied inside the struck the bell madly. Dong! 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 The echoes of the bell woke the guardians of the fort, who roused themselves out of the confusion before their leaders and officers yelled at them to arm themselves with weapons and don their armor. It took the confused men some time before they realized that the Empire was here and their doorstep, and they hurriedly sprung into action eagerly. Tong! 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 Heavy footfalls echoed up and down the entire fort as men rushed to their defenses. In less than a turn of an hourglass, the guardians were all up and ready, their sweaty palms gripping their spear shafts and clutching shields, while others held on to the risers of their bows and fingered the fletchlings of their arrows, making sure that the nicely straightened to ensure a proper flight. Their sister fort, a few stone throws away, was the same, its one thousand defenders rushing to make ready for combat as the Empire forces marched steadily towards the two tiny ford forts guarding the farming land. The marching Empire forces clashed to a stop, while before extreme bow range and the square and the lines of blue armor-clad soldiers shook themselves into formations. Dozens and dozens of mantlets and portable shields made from wood logs were carried forward by the Empire archers. They hide behind the mantlets and they cautiously advanced to within bow range and crossbow range before slamming the sharp stakes of the mantlets into the ground. Loose! The guardians of the fort released volley after volley of arrows at the advancing enemy. That was hidden behind the mantlets who exchanged bow fire with them. A horn blown from the Empire cut through the cries and curses of the guardians in the fort, and the heavy marching of the Empire troops stormed their way up step by step, towards the two thousand defenders barring their way forward. The Empire's heavy infantry squares raised their shields to protect themselves from the rain of arrows, but here and there an arrow found an opening, sending a soldier to the netherworld. The archers behind the cover of the mantlets shot back at the defenders with equal results, dropping the defenders in one and twos. As the distance closed, majors both sides started using their spells, while the defenders, having an advantage of magical protection spells and formations, carved into the stones of the forts. Bolts of lightning and balls of fire landed amongst both sides. Empire majors split their duties in defending and attacking. Half the majors of the infantry squares cast protection spells to block as much of the arrows and spells that were thrown their way, while the other half focused on attack spells. 
A heavy ballista bolt hammered against the closest infantry square, and a bolt splintered against the magic barrier. The barrier held for a split second before it collapsed. The mage, who expended his mana, fell back as he convulsed from mana burn. The shattered bolt flung splinters as long as a man's arm into the infantry square, fraying any unlucky soldier who was exposed into a screaming bloody mess. Each infantry square, composed of over a thousand troops, with support of majors and other auxiliary troops. Six infantry squares were thrown forward with another thousand archers as range support against the two forward forts with a thousand defenders each of the two-nation alliance. The forward forts were built to provide a system of early warning for the cities behind them. They were built in pairs, each able to flank the enemy's attack on either fort, should the enemy choose to attack a single fort first, the defenders in other fort would just be able to hit the rear flanks of the besieging enemy while attacking both forts at the same time would split the forces then, granting an advantage to the defenders. Yet the enemy commander could not ignore the forts and skip past them as they can carry out attacks on his rear or his supply lines, thus the forts had to be destroyed, delaying the main attack on the cities which granted the two nations more time and warning to prepare for an invasion. The defenders were all volunteers, as they knew that the forts were just delaying tactic and that they were selling their lives to buy time for their loved ones in the cities. The defenders roared as one, as the Empire infantry slammed into the spiked moat, covering their forts, and siege ladders slammed against the stone parapets. The boy wiped streaks of tears off his face as he clung tightly to the buckling saddle of the sprinting war dragon. The war dragon's two feet kicked against the dirt path as the boy guided its movements towards the signal towers, behind the forts and away from the madness. The tower keepers, hearing the boy's yells and reports of the enemy forces, turned pale before they quickly climbed to the top of the wooden tower and doused a dry store with wolf dung and dragon oil and struck a flint against a piece of stone, creating sparks which sent the whole thing on fire. Soon a thick smelly grey cloud appeared over the signal tower, which soon followed by another tower and another as far as the eye could see. Lord Rock! A fully armoured soldier with a motif of twin-tailed scorpion on his breastplate, riding a war dragon, dismounted and saluted. The defenders of the two forts had been destroyed. We have taken five hundred defenders and another five hundred wounded. Kill the wounded, the bald, muscular knight replied on his war dragon mount. Keep the rest as slaves. Rotate the regiments that fought out and move the rest forward. Yes, my lord. The soldier saluted again and dashed off back into his mount and charged off to issue the orders of his lord. The rock sat upright in his war dragon as he glazed across the smoke-tinted battlefield littered with dead and dying bodies. He turned and looked at the rows and rows of silent soldiers clad in heavy armor and touched the bloodstone amulet hanging over his neck. They have wasted almost a day destroying the two forts. The rock thought to himself, it is time for them to move before the enemy can react. He gave a mental command, and the silent soldiers moved as one, marching forward without a single word. The other soldiers stayed away from this group, whispering amongst themselves as they watched the eerily silent regiment march over the trampled ground. The rock gave a wave, and his horn blew across the fields, and the tired Empire soldiers picked themselves up and formed into ranks before trotting across the broken field, advancing towards their next objective. Wind Keep Castle, Frontier City, Kingdom of Meccan, Two Nation Alliance. 
Hurried footsteps echoed down the marble-like flooring of the great hall as the courier half ran towards the castle lord's private study. The two guards gave way to the courier who had a red sash trimmed with gold diagonally over his shoulder, which identified him as an important messenger. The courier knocked on the thick double doors, and not long the doors were opened inside by the manservant, who led a sweating courier inside the study. My lord, the courier went down on one knee. The warning towers, they were lit. The grey lord placed his quill down as he heard the news. When was this? Just earlier, the courier said. No more than a turn of the glass. I came as soon as it was reported. You may leave. The castle lord, also known as the Grey Lord, to the people here, dismissed the courier, who stood up and retreated from his study. Call all the commanders for an urgent meeting now, the Grey Lord said to his servant, who disappeared out of the study behind the courier. It took less than an hour for all six commanders stationed in Frontier City to arrive at Windkeep Castle. The great hall had a massive rectangular table laid out by the servants with some light refreshments. The grey lord sat at the head of the table, his long grey hair tied into a ponytail, while his thick bushy grey beard was combed neatly and tied into tiny gold bands. He looked to be in his mid-forties, with a wrinkled and sun-baked face, and deep grey eyes. Even his simple dressing was in grey-white tones. The commander has arrived one by one, all dressed for war. As they filled up the seats, other officials dressed like scholars and merchants also arrived, and soon the table was fully filled. As you all may know by now, the warning beacons along the border have been lit up. The great lord stated once everyone was seated, I want all able men to be armed and ready for battle as soon as possible. Next, I want the farmers to move all the harvest in and burn the rest that can't be moved. I also want the merchants to provide all carts and wagons they have to help out. He looked at the group of civic officials and merchants and nodded. I already sent out messenger verms out to the next city in the capital, Grey Lord said next. I expect reinforcements to arrive within two five-day weeks. My lord, one of the commanders spoke up. Will we be moving the troops to relieve the fort forts? No, the Grey Lord shook his head. The board of forts could only buy us a day or two of time the most. By the time we muster our forces, the forts would have been lost. I want the soldiers to dig in and fight, he continued. Frontier City has never been lost, and we have fought off invaders ever since its founding, as long as we stand strong behind its walls. Strong together. Yes, my lord, the men echoed. Strong together. The city inhabitants remained calm and went on with their normal activities, even as news spread of the coming invasion. The trust the inhabitants had to their city was immense, as the city walls had never been breached since it was built a hundred years ago. The city sat in a mild rays, with the south side facing an enormous inland freshwater sea, the source of all life on the continent, the source sea. A large swath of farmland spread out from the city walls, providing food for 60,000 inhabitants and soldiers living in the frontier city. The walls that inhabitants placed their faith in stood over 20 meters high, made out of granite and magic. It held against dozens of invasions over the years. Massive siege engines sat on a huge square towers, covered the approaches to the city, while dozens more of ballistas were hidden in embrasures within the wall. Flags of red trimmed with gold and flags of purple were flying on the walls as soldiers dressed in tabards of either red or purple. 
The red represented the kingdom of Meccan, while the purple represented troops from the kingdom of the Foral, whom both kingdoms were allied as the two-nation alliance. A grisly-looking soldier with a crude leather band covering his left eye spat over the battlements as he caressed a well-worn wooden of the crossbow in his hands lovingly. Come on, you bastards! I'm waiting for you. End of chapter Chapter 202 Flames of War Thirty kilometers to the kingdom of Makan. The land was in fire and smoke, fields of unharvested crops burned and wilted in the heat as the farmers and soldiers laid torch to the fields. The air smelled of ashes, and the farmers carried what little possessions they had, while the carts and wagons pulled by land dragons and muffalos were plied full of harvest. Those that couldn't be collected or transported were set to the torch by the soldiers to the wailings of the farmers. Yet despite all that, the farmers and their families could only bear it as a threat of the empire loomed upon them. The fires were soon seen by the city when the night falls, while the thick black smoke could be viewed in the day. And scouts raced through the fire and smoke, carrying news of the sightings of the empire armies. Behind the fleeing Meccan scouts came a screen of empire war-dragon cavalry. Long lines of black-armed clad empire soldiers marched behind fluttering blue empire banners over the fields, followed by wagons and wagons of supplies and camp followers. The empire cavalry rode down the fleeing scouts and any other civilians in the area, capturing or killing them if they resisted, and looted what pitiful possessions they had. The empire soldiers dabbed their blue capes and water and covered their mouths and noses to avoid breathing most of the ash in the air, while foraging parties ventured around the countryside in search of food and water. The retreating McCanns had poisoned most of the wells and torched whatever food supplies they couldn't transport, but still, there were some that were missed or hidden away by farmers and their families. The Empire forces happily pillaged whatever they could be found, then filled barrels of fresh water from the following streams and rivers while constantly advancing towards Frontier City, behind the mass of panicking villagers looking for shelter within the city. Frontier City The Grey Lord stood overlooking the battlements from the tallest tower in his castle. The Grey family had served as the city guardians and lords of generations, he watched the flood of refugees streaming across the fields and fortifications towards the city gates and frowned. Have the harvest from the bombs been all brought in? Yes, my lord, one of the aides replied while consulting a scroll. The granaries and storehouses are nearly full and should have enough supplies to last the city for three months. Issue an order to have the merchants to limit the sale of grain to other necessities. I do not want the people to hoard supplies, the great lord said. Have the scouts returned? No, my lord, the military aide replied. There are expected to return before nightfall. Close the gates before it gets dark, he ordered. Turn refugees away. But, but my lord, there is at least a thousand more people still out there. The military aide cried. We can't leave them all out there. The city is full, the grey lord said without any change of expression. Tell them to head towards Winterfall instead. But my lord, Winterfall is at least a week march away. The aides were looking at each other in confusion. The refugees won't make it with the number of supplies they have. Close the gate by nightfall, 
the Grey Lord repeated before he turned away from the view and headed towards the stone stairs. I will not repeat myself. Yes, my lord. The aides bowed as they watched the disappearing bank of the castle lord disappearing down the stairs. The aides looked out towards the crowd and shook their heads. Those that can't make it by the time the sun sets is doomed. Frontier City, Eastern Wall The setting sun had painted the purple-red hue of the city walls, which beauty was lost on the one-eyed soldier, dressed in a mix of leather and plate mail, as he shoved his way past the crowd of mingling soldiers who had gathered before the gate commander's room. Back to your posts, several nobles and officers yelled at the gathered men. Back off! Why do we close the gates? the gathered soldiers called out. There are still many people out there. The Green Lord has given his orders. The great commander stormed out of his office, cursing. Now get back to your posts, or I'll have you whole lot whipped. The one-eyed soldier pushed his way to the front and said, I didn't sign up to let helpless folk die. Captain Boss, the commander frowned, what are you doing here? My men want to know why the gates are closed. Boss and one-eyed demanded, the city can still hold the refugee folk. Why are we abandoning them out there? The Empire Army is almost upon us. It's the Grey Lord's order, the commander retorted. He wants the gate closed. Now back to your posts. And you too, Captain. The gathered soldiers grumbled amongst themselves and slowly dispersed back to their post, leaving Captain Pulse glaring at the gate commander, who lost the staring match and retreated back into his office. Captain, a scrawny soldier dressed in oversized leather called to Pulse. What do we do now, Captain? Back to the men, Captain Pulse frowned as he walked back towards the walls. Call the squad leaders together. Yes, sir. The scrawny soldier saluted and ran off ahead, leaving Boss alone with his thoughts. Boss came from one of the many micro-kingdoms dotting the continent, the small and peaceful kingdom of Dawn, before he got embroiled in the war with the expansionist empire of Bluewood. His kingdom destroyed and the remnants enslaved. He and his surviving company of soldiers fought on desperately for many years, his original company of over a hundred slowly grew to a thousand, as soldiers and refugees from others' defeated kingdoms joined up with him over the years. They conducted hit-and-run attacks, lightning raids on supply convoys and the empire, but eventually were forced back with two thousand civilians. Boss had to make a choice of retreating or risk having the non-combatants killed by the empire troops hunting them. Hence Boss gathered his men and the refugees and marched towards the kingdom of Mecca, when word came that the two remaining kingdoms had formed an alliance. Upon reaching Frontier City, the Grey Lord recruited him on the promise that they were refugees with him would be taken proper care of. Boss nodded at the two sentries at the gate of simple fenced-off campsite next to the eastern wall. In the darkened skies, several braziers and torches were already lit, casting their orange glow on the surroundings. Rows of mismatched tents were pitched up as neatly as possible in the hard-packed earth, while the company's blacksmith and quartermaster had their stalls and smithies set up against the city wall with a couple of simple wooden lean-tos covering their supplies, and the smith was at work sharpening and grinding blades. Captain, a small group of rough-looking soldiers appeared before Boss, gesturing them to follow him. They entered a large tent in the middle of the camp, and the men gathered around the only table in the middle of the tent. The Grey Lord has given the order to close the gates, Borsk spoke. There are people trapped outside. Is there no way for us to open the gates and allow the poor folks in? 
one of the leaders asked. We can just let them be slaughtered out there. The rest of the men nodded and agreed. Yeah, we've seen too many of our own people dead. We must find a way to save them. I say we storm the gate and open it, someone yelled. The Empire Army is still not here yet. I will seek an audience with the Grey Lord. Vol slapped his hand on the table, silencing everyone. I want no one to do anything rash while I'm gone. Is that clear? The gathered leaders grumbled, but they nodded in acknowledgement. Now, I want you all to check on your men. Make sure everyone is ready. The Empire. Captain! Some scrawny soldier burst into the tent in a hurry. The Meccan scouts are back and they report the Empire's here. The bells of the entire city toiled and rang as news of the Empire army was in sight of the city. Soldiers were ordered to their posts in the walls, while the citizens of the city flocked to the tallest buildings or towers to catch a glimpse of the invading army despite being at night. Screams and frightened cries sounded out against the gates as desperate refugees hammered on the gates, trying to force their way into the safety. Those at the rear was smarter quickly make their way away from the city, knowing that the Empire Army focus would be on the city instead. In the distance, hundreds and hundreds of firelights slowly emerged from the Empire Army approaching. The Empire's army stopped at the verge of the city's defenses and made camp before the whole city where its citizens were watching with a festive mood. My lord, we should launch a night raid while the enemy is still making camp and in disarray. The commanders advised the Grey Lord, who was observing the pinpricks of light from the torches and campfires in the distance with a magical scrying spell. Do you know who the commander of the Empire Army is before us? Grey Lord asked mildly. I heard it's the Rock, one of the aides responded to the Grey Lord's question. Ah, yes, the Scorpion King, Grey Lord sighed, and you want to lead the cavalry out into a night ambush against one of the Empire's greatest generals? Why do you think he parades his army before the city and sets up a camp before your eyes? He continued. The commanders looked at each other with frowns in their faces. Because it's bait to trap any forces silly enough to attack them. The Grey Lord nodded. Rotate the men on the wall and make sure everyone had a good rest and ample food. It'll be a busy day tomorrow morning. Black Scorpion Legion won camp. I have the men rest. The speaker in heavy armor removed his helmet exposing his bald head. Half the sentries, too. Give the men a good rest. But, my lord, won't the two nations launch a sneak attack tonight? One of the armored soldiers gathered in a richly decorated tent asked. Knowing that bastard in the castle there, Rock gave a grin, he won't dare move his forces. I want scouting teams out tonight, he continued, as he took a flagon of wine from his serving maids, mapped the terrain around the city, and also set up a distance markers for our troops tomorrow. Should we prepare for a preemptive attack before the sun rises? One of the black scorpion commanders asked. No, I got something better. The rock grin went wider. Perhaps the bronze men, when the moon is at its zenith, send them in to attack the city. But my lord, the bronze men! The commanders looked uneasily amongst themselves. We do not know their capabilities. Do not worry, he assured the commanders. I know what they can do, and I have my plans. Get the engineers to work on building a siege weapon and ladders. Now go, carry out my orders. Yes, my lord, the gathered commanders and leaders saluted and bowed before they left the tent. The rock finished the wine and tossed a flagon away before he picked up the soul stone controlling the bronze men and grinned. 
Feeling the souls conscious of the ranks and ranks of turned people, he stood in silence at the back of the camp when none of the other soldiers were wailing to approach nearer. The two nations wouldn't know what storm is coming for them. End of chapter. Chapter 203. Dawn of War. Dark shadows made their way across the dark fields in several files, approaching the looming city walls where dozens of bonfires were lit at the base, providing a source of light for the sentries on the walls. Metal scraping and squeaked against each other as the silent shadows marched towards the walls. Magical detection spells sent by the defenders suddenly burst into life as shadows touched the spells. Sparks and magic flares erupting from the triggering spells illuminating the surrounding fields. The lights flickered off and black armor of the Empire soldiers, who continued to advance without any changes, heading straight for the remaining few refugee camped outside the city with the hopes that the gates would open for them in the morning. Screams broke out amongst the refugees as they woke up to the firework display that lit up the advancing soldiers. The black-clad soldiers rampaged through the camps, killing and slaughtering everyone regardless of their age or gender. The defenders on the walls looked on in fear and confusion as they saw figures in dark armor attacking everyone below the walls. Alarms rang out, and the sentries aimed their crossbows at the Empire forces, wreaking havoc below. Commanders and leaders screamed at the sentries to shoot their bolts and arrows at the attacking soldiers. Hundreds of bolts and arrows rained down from the walls, slamming into the mass of enemy infantry and any unlucky refugees like a porcupine. The city was awakened as the bells rang out of the night attack and more and more soldiers appeared on the walls. But to the defender's surprise, the enemy soldiers riddled up with dozens of dozens of bolts of arrows appeared to be fine, as they continued their butchery and panicked refugees. The defenders looked at each other in panic, wondering what sorcery they were dealing with, while their commanders continued to order them to shoot their crossbows and arrows. Frontier City, Last Company Camp Captain Ball stood before the assembled men who were dressed in all forms of patched-up armor and different colored tabards. His men were made up from a collection of small kingdoms, and he was proud of them, for each of his men in his company were like brothers who had fought and bled for each other. Captain, the 843 men of the last company have all assembled. The company's senior sergeant holding the company's standard, which looked like a patchwork of multiple colors stitched together by the womanfolk, reported. Boss nodded and was able to address the company when the messenger riding a war dragon covered with red and yellow trappings reined in before Boss and gave a quick salute before yelling. Commander's orders are for your company to reinforce the third section of the eastern wall. You want to make your way there now. The messenger removed the roll of orders and double-checked the scroll before he handed it over to Boss and jerked his reins, turning the war dragon around and rode off. Gotta go, more orders to deliver. Boss nodded and took the offered scroll before he turned to his men. Group leaders, form up the men. We head to the third section of the eastern walls now fields before the walls. Several mage lights shot out over the walls to illuminate the fields, showing the enemy soldiers finishing up the remaining refugees too slow to escape. A cold, evil aura appeared to flow out of the enemy that demoralized the defenders, especially when the orders came down to not open the sally ports to engage the enemy in close combat and save the refugees. 
the defenders could only shoot off bolts and arrows at the strangely silent enemies whose eyes appeared to glow red in the shadows. Borsa's men quickly climbed up the winding tower and onto the battlements, joining the Meccan company of guardians on the walls. The men spread out amongst the stretch of the wall between the two towers that defined the area which they were ordered to defend. Bors looked over the battlement and felt a chill down his spine as he looked at the silent enemy and asked, What do you think? A soft-looking aristocratic youngster with long braided hair wearing a set of tailor-made half-plates stood beside Bors and frowned. His perfect eyebrows narrowed artistically as he looked at the slaughter below. It's strange. They're too quiet. Yes, wearing that armor and wielding weapons will make men pant and yell. Bors frowned. I don't even hear anything coming from those Empire soldiers other than the screams of the refugees. You were right, the aristocrat said, and they seemed immune to arrows and bolts. Taurus, is this what we heard about before we came here? Bors asked. The Empire's secret weapon. I think so, Taurus replied as he rubbed his dragon-hide gloves against his chin. Look, they are retreating. Bastards, Bors brooded. Them Empire sent those bastards just to kill off the refugees. Taurus nodded absent-mindedly as he fell into his own thoughts, while Bors cursed the retreating Empire soldiers when a horn blew from one of the towers. Looks like the Lord's commanders are being called to gather up. This is unnatural, Taurus said. I don't know what foul magic is being used here, but it just doesn't bode well for us. As long as we kill those bastards, Bors replied, if the Grey Lord had let those poor folk in, we won't have their deaths on us. Tyrus nodded, thinking back to the castle when it got raised down by the Empire. The men of the last company will do their best to prevent what happened to their homes and families. Black Scorpion Legion 1 Camp Lines of bronze men marched into the camp with various degrees of wounds. Most of the bronze men had arrows and bolts sticking out from their armored bodies, but they continued to remain silent. The only sound coming from them were the stomp of the footsteps and the squeak of the metal against metal. The men of Black Scorpion watched the bronze men marching back to their places with fearful expressions. Some whispered prayers to the gods, while others kept away from the bronze men. As the bronze men settled down, a small army of mages and the apprentices, followed by healers, tended to the bronze men's maintenance and wounds. The rock strolled amongst the bronze men, watching the apprentices removing or snapping off arrow shafts before taking the armor off and the corpse-gray bodies of the bronze men. Punctured wounds left behind by the arrows and bolts left of finger-sized holes with a thick purple-red pus like blood clotting around the wound. He watched the healers removing the arrow shafts and cleaned the wounds while the majors shoved rubbery hoses made from intestines of some monsters into the mouths of the bronze men and force-feeding them the arcana concoction that gave the bronze men the energy to keep moving. My lord! A skinny robe mage with a head of thinning white hair approached him while bowing. We hardly lost a single bronze man from the arrows and bolts of the enemy. The rock nodded and asked the master mage in charge of the bronze men, Does the injuries hamper them? Oh, no! The master mage cried out excitedly. They will heal in time. As long as they don't lose a limb or two, they will function as normal. The rock looked at the silent figure of the naked bronze men being worked on by the healers and mages. There was even a few females amongst the ranks, he noticed. When will they be ready to fight again? Once we finish feeding them by dawn, 
The mage frowned and mentally calculated. No, an hour before dawn, they should be ready. Good. He turned around and gestured one of his aides to hurry over, bowing. Call the commanders to gather at my tent within the hour. His aide bowed again and before rushing off to carry out his orders. He returned to his tent and not long his commanders arrived one by one. How's the progress on the siege equipment? A stout elf in a simple leather stood forward and saluted. We've already assembled four of the three trebuchets, eight blisters, two siege towers, and rams from our baggage trains. A further two hundred ladders were crafted using trees here. The siege engineer said, Remaining two trebuchets and two siege towers will be completed by dawn. The rock nodded before turning his attention to his legion commanders. We will attack at dawn when the siege equipment is in position. Atus, I want you to take command of all the Legion cavalry and go to block off the main eastern road behind the frontier city to prevent anyone from escaping or reinforcing the city. The Rock looked at one of the commanders who saluted at the order. Fourth and Fifth Legion is to attack the eastern walls, he continued, giving orders. Second and Third to take the north, while the first go for the west wall. Start the attack with firebombs before committing the slave troops, the Rock said. The legions are too advanced behind the slaves. My lord, how about the southern harbor of the city? One of the commanders said. Don't worry, Admiral Steel Law is waiting at the other side and he's feet to push any Meccan or floral ships that dare to close his path. He replied. Now get some rest, the sun will be up in a few hours. The sky slowly brightened over the horizon, turning the clouds orange-red. The Empire Elite Legions had formed up into ranks waiting for their commanders to give the word for the assault. Each legion held 3,000 elite infantry, 1,000 cavalry, and 500 archers with another 50 majors for magic support, and over 3,000 followers like wagon drivers, blacksmiths, cleaners, cooks, and even prostitutes that supported the entire marching army. The breaking of dawn was held by several large clay pots filled with burning resin, the smoking pots arced out over the skies and smashed against the walls, spewing its burning contents over the walls and the defenders. Screams and bells rang from the city as the Empire siege engines tossed more and more clay pots, filled with flammable resin onto the city walls and its defenders. The city ballistas quickly responded back by firing massive bolts towards the Empire siege engines, hidden behind a bulwark of earthwork. The thick, oily, and smutty smoke helped mask the approaching Empire slave army as they made their way towards the city walls. But despite that, some of the arrows and bolts from the defenders still managed to find a mark amongst the light, lightly armored warrior slaves. Over 12,000 slaves attacked in three directions. They wore light leather armor and armor with a spear or a simple sword and a shield into battle. Should they survive the battle, they would be granted their freedom and become official citizen of the Empire. The warrior slaves carried the long green wood ladders crafted the night before and charging towards the walls where the defenders were blinded by the fire and smoke. Any slave that ran away from the battle was mercilessly cut down by the Empire's legions behind them. The long wobbly ladders slammed against the walls and the slaves attempted to climb up onto the battlements of the walls, but showers of hot sand and oil rained down upon them sending the climbers screaming down to the ground, while others rolled out a screaming agony on the ground as the hot sand burned their eyeballs away and the boiling oil fried their flesh. 
Despite the horrors going on before the slaves, more and more ladders slammed against the walls, and the slaves ploughed on, most falling to the ground, breaking bones and limbs as the ladders were hoisted off the walls by the defenders. For the Empire! Kill! End of chapter. Chapter 204. Siege. Frontier City. Grunts, curses, screams, and cries surrounded Boss as he hacked at the hooks of the siege ladder in front of him. Suddenly a wild-eyed warrior shrieking something unintelligible appeared before him on the ladder. The warrior leapt off the rungs of the ladder and crashed into one of the last company men, both of them rolling around on the stone floor. Boss gave a curse and slashed hard at his newcomer, his blunt blade leaving a white mark on the leather armor of the warrior before scoring its bloody line across the back of his arm. The warrior screamed in pain, running away from Boss and the last company soldier. Kill him! Boss roared as he charged together with his man, both of them attacking from two different directions and managed to deal a killing blow after a couple bouts. Turning back to the ladder, he saw a couple Empire slave warriors had managed to climb up and clear the small space around them. Stop them, Boss yelled hoarsely. Don't let them up. Suddenly, a flash of silver and Taurus appeared before the two slave warriors, his rapier darting and piercing one of them in the eye before he pulled out rapidly with an off-handed slash. He cut the throat of the other warrior within a second. The half-blinded warrior screamed and died as several other class company soldiers rammed their spearheads into him and pushed the dead warrior off the battlements. Push the ladder off! With the help of the other four warriors, Boss managed to shove the ladder back away, and he saw the surprising O of one of the slave warriors on the top of the ladder as it toppled to the side. Boss panted hard as he dropped his blunt blade, picking up a leaf blade sword from one of the dead littered on the wall. Kill those bastards! The day ended with yet another retreat, beaten back by the wary defenders. Boss and his men gave a tried cheer as the pressure fell off from the Empire forces retreated, leaving behind broken bodies. The wounded and the dying cried and screamed rose constantly from both sides where they'd lain fallen. Move all the wounded back, Boss yelled hoarsely, as the smelly oil smoke caused the fires clogged up his dry throat. He hawked and spat out a glob of dirty spit before he yelled at the scared youngsters below the inner wall. Water! Bring up water! The city urchins, too young to wield a sword, but wanting to fight the Empire, climbed the stone steps to the tower, delivering buckets of cool, clean water drawn from the city walls to the defenders. Captain, do you think that they will attempt another attack? Taurus asked. He still looked neat and clean despite being constantly in the thick of the fiercest batching. He swept his hair back with his hand, like he was out having a stroll in the garden instead of a battle. Boss growled, maybe, maybe not. This is the third attempt. They are just testing our strength. He raised a blood-stained sword up, checking for nicks on the blade while ignoring the sticky dried blood. Get a rapier, Taurus advised. It doesn't get dulled easily, and you can use less strength and stamina. I wielded a sword for over fifteen years, Boss sighed. I don't know all the fancy sword moves of you nobles. Ha! <laughs> you just need fitness, Taurus winked as he posing the rapier stance. Just poke, poke. Perfect for stopping the enemy from climbing up the ladder. If I want to poke the enemy, I'll use a goddamn spear, Boss growled as he walked along the battlement, checking his men with Taurus at his side. Brute force, as usual, Taurus smiled. Oh well, I'll leave it all the heavy work to you then. 
Ball snorted and picked up a ladle from the water bucket and quenched his dry throat, the cooling water tasting like nectar. Go make yourself useful. Find out how many wounded and dead. Tara's smile faded as his expression turned serious before he headed towards the tower. I'll do that. Bastards. Boss cursed as he looked over the battlements at the distant Empire camps. All right. Clear the dead and the wounded. Refill the arrow barrels and check your blades. The men carried out the orders by simply tipping the enemy dead over the walls while they carried their own dead down and laid them neatly in the courtyard. Swords and spearheads were replaced and the company blacksmith used pedal-powered grindstones to sharpen the blades. The tired men labored on until the sun came down before hot food and the kitchens were delivered. Most of them ate quickly and made use of the lull to sleep in the battlements. Taurus walked up with a bowl of thick porridge to Bors, who was sleeping against the battlement and kicked him awake before handing him his bowl. Eat. Bors stood up and scratched his aching muscles before digging into the food. Thanks. We got 47 dead and 31 seriously wounded. Taurus sat down next to Bors and leaned back against the wall. Another 400 with minor injuries and wounds. Bors set down the half-eaten bowl of porridge and cursed. More of us gone. How are the conditions of the seriously wounded? I paid off the healers to give our men treatment over the others, Taurus replied, but at least half of the men won't make it by tomorrow morning. Boss nodded and continued eating. Get some rest. We still haven't seen any signs of those undying soldiers, nor the Black Scorpion Legion. Yes, it's just the first day, Taurus replied. Gods, I feel drained already. Don't let the men hear that, Boss snapped. It's bad for morale. Taurus grinned. Sorry about that. Now get some sleep. Attack! Attack! Boss jolted awake from his sleep and he sprung up. He looked over the battlements and saw fireballs flying towards him and he yelled in fright. Taurus, get up! He reached down and dragged Taurus, who was still half asleep, and pulled him away from the section of the wall that they were at, while yelling at the rest of the men to scatter. Seconds later, a loud whoosh roared into the area and the wall where they were and burst into flames as the clay pots filled with flammable resin thrown by the Empire's trebuchets exploded. Waves of heat washed up against Borst and the rest who made it away in time, while those slower were caught by the sticky flaming resin which melts their flesh down to the bones. Boss and his men could only watch their brothers in arms scream in pain and died painfully. Taurus's face turned ashen as he tried to use a water spell to extinguish the flames, but it barely put the fire out. The men growled in anger as they watched helplessly, some even cheering as they couldn't save their friends. Bor suddenly roared, The Empire will pay! First they took our lands, then they took our families, and now our friends and brothers. The men roared in anger and their spirits rose as they stared at the hurtful eyes at the enemy camp in the distance, Back to your posts, watch out for the enemy attacks. The siege of Frontier City went on for a week, with the Empire trebuchets constantly flinging rocks or flammable materials into the city throughout the day and night. Thick smoke clouded the city as fires raged from amongst the walls and buildings nearby, and the festive feeding of the city faded slowly into fear. Several rich merchants bribed the guards at the South Harbor to allow them to flee the city on board private yachts and cargo barges, were met and dealt with swiftly by the Empire coastal ships raiding along the inland seacoast. Others attempted to leave from the Eastern Gate, barely traveled half a day, before getting ambushed by the Black Scorpion's Legion's cavalry. 
Any other traveller or merchant attempting to reach Frontier City was also ambushed, captured, or killed along the eastern road. The constant bombardment from the Empire's siege engines soon took its toll on the defenders. The defenders knew that as long as the gates remained closed, the Empire could not enter the city, and the city has more than enough supplies to last for three months. But, with the constant harassing attacks, draining the city's morale over time, several commanders appealed to the Grey Lord to lead the men out to destroy the enemy's siege weapons, where all rejected on the premise that the city walls were still strong enough to hold out against the bombardments. The Black Scorpion Legion leaders gathered before the commander and watched the smoking cities in the distance. The Grey Lord is smart, the Rock said as he lowered his telescope. He probably knows that I have an ambush waiting for his troops to attack the siege engines, he said as he pointed to the row of trebuchets lining up behind the series of protective earthen berms. He also knows that he has an advantage of the city walls and supplies, despite the fact that we can resupply via inland rivers with our ships, the Rock frowned. I think it's about time to deal the decisive strike to the city. Frontier City has never been captured since its founding. He looked at his men. But because of that, they have turned complacent and slack. They think their high walls, magic defenses, and anti-dragon ballistas will be enough to stop us. But they are wrong. Tonight, we will open the gates and take the city. Boss wiped the sweat off of his forehead and the heat inside the crowded tent rose. Other company captains, hundreds of man leaders, and the raids all squeezed into the Western Wall commander's tent for a meeting. The commander wore a gold-lined tunic and sat on a throne-like chair with a couple servants fanning him in the hot and stuffy tent. Despite looking muscular, the commander had a slight tummy that showed that he stretched tunic. My captains and leaders, his voice cut the soft mutterings of the gathered soldiers, the Grey Lord forbids a sally attack upon the enemy's siege weapons, for he knows his trap to lure troops out. For the time being, please endure. He gave a small smile to the soldiers who frowned and mumbled amongst themselves in displeasure. Boss cursed inwardly, knowing that it was yet another waste of their time having this useless meeting. The commander continued to speak more of morale and failed badly at trying to give a rousing speech to the captains before he quickly dismissed the men from the tent over his embarrassment. Captain Boss, someone called out to Boss when he was enjoying a soft breeze outside the hot, sweaty tent. He turned and saw a young Meccan soldier in a shiny plate mail with a captain's plume on the helmet that he was holding. I'm Captain Lancer, leader of the 19th Guardians. The young Meccan soldier introduced himself. I'm assigned to the same western wall as you are, and will be holding at your right flank. Boss gave a grunt of acknowledgement. He checked the, the Meccan soldier. You look pretty young to be a captain. Um, the Lancer's face turned slightly red. He said in embarrassment, Well, uh, my father, he gotten me this commission. He raised a company of soldiers to help fight against the Avril Empire. I see. Boss frowned at the young Meccan who looked barely old enough to even shave. Is this your first time in battle? Y yes, and since we are to be neighbors, I'm hoping you can give me some pointers. Lancer gave a hopeful look to Boss' frowning face. Boss winced as he closed his eyes before muttering a string of curses to the gods and the city lords. You want some pointers? Take off your armor and go home. This way your men won't die needlessly. End of chapter. Chapter 205 From Within like clockwork, the Empire's trebuchets started tossing rocks and flaming pots at the city walls. 
The dark night skies were lit up with fireballs and screams of the wounded and dying. One of the firebombs went up on a ball of greenish flames as it impacted against the northern city's walls' gates. Dalton Sakar rose from his prone position amongst dozens and dozens of refugees, huddled together for warmth in the streets after he saw the green fireball in the distant wall. He carefully stretched his body, working out the kinks and knots in his toned muscles, and covered himself up with a tattered bloodstained cloak. He pulled the female beside him, covered head to toe in a similar outfit up, and half dragged her along the dark streets. The path illuminated by fires burning on the walls and the buildings that were hit by the firebombs. They kept to the shadows, making their way towards the north gate. It was easily as the streets were dark. The Great Lord had issued an order that no street lamps were to be lit at night, and all windows must be covered. They barely met any patrols along the way, and the soldiers' attention were on the walls. Dalta stopped at the edge of the burnt-down building and pulled his sleeve up the female that he was dragging along up. He pinched hard on the flesh and the underside of the female's arm and felt something hard that he pulled the object out. A glistening bone handle appeared and slowly pulled it out of the flesh of the female, who remained silent throughout the whole process. The bone dirk came out slowly with a sticky wet sound and was covered in a thick, sickly purple-red blood. Dalta wiped the dirk clean on the tatter cloak and repeated the process on the other hand of the female. He rubbed the ring on his finger and the female suddenly appeared to come alive, despite the glassy eye look reflected in the firelight that they waited in silence in the shadows. Dalta grinned in anticipation or kidding that he was about to unleash upon the unaware city. Not long, other shadowy figures appeared and gathered around Dalta, who nodded in a greeting to each party. It is time to open the gates. The gathered agents nodded as they had infiltrated the city a week earlier by pretending to be refugees. The knights where the bronze men attacked the refugees gathered before the walls was a plan by the rock to hide his own men with several bronze men amongst the refugees. Weapons were hidden inside the bodies of the bronze men to avoid any suspicion, and they were all covered in blood as their skin tone was obviously very different from a regular person. The soldiers who checked them when they were rescued from the attack fell for the lie that Delta gave. The female bronze man was his wife who had lost her mind in the attack. The soldiers, seeing the lifelessness of the female and the dark, could not find anything wrong with them and let them in. Other agents also entered the same way and the time that they were watched by the soldiers, but as the siege intensified, their guards disappeared into fight at the walls. The agents kept an alert eye out on Green Fireball, which was their signal. Seeing that, they were to attack the gate to hold it, and the Empire forces would relieve them. Volta gestured for his men and forward, and gave a mental command to his bronze man partner. His ring has only a small bloodstone that can only control the female. His force consists of a dozen knight-ranked soldiers and six bronze men. They quickly formed up two lines and mimicked the Mechan Patrol's marching style and the dark with first sight. They appeared to be Mechan Patrol with the dark cloaks. As they appeared at the gates, hundreds of soldiers and two-nation alliance appeared, but no one paid attention to them. It was until they were roughly fifty feet from the gate that some soldier noticed something strange about the group of soldiers that appeared to be dressed like refugees. An alarm was cried out, but it was too late. Dalta and his men had dashed forward, their speed enhanced by magic. They cut down the soldiers in their path and armed themselves with the fallen soldiers' weapons. 
Then Waran's men formed a rear guard, punching and breaking bones of the soldiers who rushed into the fight with them. His team split into two, with one heading towards the gate to remove the bars that obstructed the block the gate, while the other heads towards the gatehouse to race the portcullis. Dalta rushed up the tower next to the gate which led towards the gatehouse on the third level. As the siege was going, the men inside the tower couldn't hear the screams and yells happening in the courtyard. Taking advantage of a surprise, Dalta and his men killed their way into the gatehouse before a general alarm was raised which by then was too late. Inside the gatehouse, his men quickly worked on the winch to raise the portcullis up. Shouts and alarms rang out as more and more soldiers rushed to the scene. The Empire agents cast a fireball spell that threw up the wall of fire and drove the Allied soldiers back. Allied mages quickly responded with an attack and hurled lightning and fire at the Empire agents around the main gates. The bronze men smashed apart the beams of wood and steel that propped up against the gate. The heavy iron bars that required a winch to lift used all six of the bronze men's strength to lift at the bar weight half a ton, cracked the stone pavement when it was dumped to the side. Stop them! A Meccan officer yelled and the soldiers rushed forward, braving the fireball and leapt into the fight of the Imperial agents. The bronze men started to push against the heavy steel and wooden gates, opening the way for the Empire forces waiting outside. The rock was on his war dragon, waiting in silence. The flames from the city cast an orange glow on the features as he suddenly yelled, Advance! And the gates are opening! War horns blew, following these orders, and the Empire Legion stormed forward. The bronze men took the front. They weathered the storm of arrows and bolts as their defenders shot them when they came into sight. A ballista bolt fired from one of the city towers and impaled two bronze men as they approached the slowly widening gates. The bolt, almost as thick as a tree trunk, nailed both men together, their limbs twitching as they tried to move while the purple-red blood splattered all over. But the rest continued on without a care. The gates are opening, someone cried out in horror, and the defenders pushed harder against the small group of Imperial agents. Kill them! The Imperial agents were all night-ranked and they easily cut down any soldier that came close, while exchanging spells with the mages, but soon they turned pale when they saw hundreds and hundreds of soldiers approaching from all sides. Quickly, they mentally commanded the bronze men to attack the soldiers. The bronze men stopped their work and turned to face the coming soldiers. They charged into the surprised rank of the soldiers, who stabbed their spears with no effect on their bodies. The bronze men smashed away the spears, thrust at them with their bare hands. They ploughed into the soldiers, breaking bones and crushing armor, throwing the ranks of soldiers into panic and fear. Spells hammered on the bronze men without much effect, despite the lightning bolt brewing off one of the arms of the female bronze man. She kept on throwing herself against the raised shields of the two nations' soldiers, gouging flesh and raking eyes out with her sharp nails. Suddenly, the fleeing wedge of the heavily armored soldiers smashed through the line of bronze men and the imperial agents. The bronze men reined back in sudden charge and took a few seconds to reorient themselves before they threw themselves against the shielded wall. Fireball! Dalta flung a ball of fire out of the narrow doorway that he was defending from. The flaming ball exploded into a shower of flames that blinded and burnt a cluster of alliance soldiers. One of them even did a ritual burn dance before flopping down unmoving. Dalton laughed as he watched the dancing soldier and charged up another spell. 
The soldiers, seeing him getting another spell ready, retreated in fear, giving Dalta and his team some breath and room. Where are the legions? Dalta asked as he threw his spell at the backs of the retreating soldiers. They are coming up the main road now. One of the agents peered out from the arrow slit. They're coming. Good. Hold the gatehouse with your lives. If the portcullis comes down, the legion will be trapped. Dalta yelled at his men. Hold this room at all cost. The rock urged his mount forward onto a quick trot, following beside the legion. The flaming pots thrown by the trebuchets that were burning on the walls provided more than ample light for his soldiers to make their way over the fields and towards the north gate. Signal the dragon corpse, he ordered. They are too focused on the west gate. His runner nodded and ran off to carry out his orders. Signal the good admiral. Tell him to attack the south harbor now. Another runner ran off with his orders and smiled while watching the first rank of bronzemen reaching the jar gates. Bosch reloaded his crossbow, grunting with an effort to lock crossbow arms back. Suddenly a draconic roar erupted from the night skies and he jerked his head up. Whose dragons? Not ours, Taurus yelled from his side. Sounds like Imperial heavyweight. The gods be damned! Boss cursed runner, inform the wall commander that the Imperial Dragon Corps are marching on the walls. Go! Boss turned back to the skies and raised his crossbow up, trying to catch a sign of the Imperial Dragons, and he wasn't disappointed. Dozens of dark shadows appeared out of nowhere from the starry sky and resolved into draconic shapes. The Imperial Dragons started to spit fireballs down, hitting the battlements and forcing the defenders to run for cover. The gunners of the ballista towers quickly swiveled their weapons and pointed them towards the attacking dragons, firing bolts of dragon lance. Mechan mages flung balls of lights into the sky and turned the night almost day bright. The imperial dragons scattered as the cover of darkness was broken, and the number of anti-dragon ballista towers that had riddled all over the city fired at the panicking dragons. Dozens and dozens of Meccan and Florian light and medium-weight dragons took off from the Grey Castle Towers, making their way towards the Imperial Dragons to engage them in aerial combat. The disciplined Imperial Dragons flew out of the city's anti-dragon ballista range and formed up in a tight formation. Their crew armed with crossbows and waited for the Alliance Dragons to come. The Alliance Dragon Riders whooped and raced each other for the effort to reach her heavier and slower Imperial Dragons each rider wanting to make the first kill and be a hero. The Alliance light and medium weights, which carried two to three riders each, armed with a crossbow and a throwing lance. The Alliance dragons were easily highlighted by the city, allowing the Imperials to fire their crossbows with accuracy. The volley of bolts tore wings and membranes and dropped riders, causing panic amongst the flyers, which the more experienced Imperial dragons took advantage of by closing in while constantly firing bolts at the shattered alliance dragons. Roars and screams echoed down from the skies as dragons and their riders wove a deadly dance of death in the skies above the city, while thousands and thousands of soldiers waged a land battle below. End of chapter chapter 206 breakthrough south harbor frontier city gentle waves lapped against the low-slung hull of the coastal raiders the imperial galleys rowed by slaves followed by rhythm of drum beats straining hard against their oars the galleys painted with stripes of blue paint charged towards frontier city's harbor in massive wave the harbor defenses spat balls of mage light out towards the freshwater sea illuminating the area around the harbor brightly. 
The Imperial galleys were exposed under the mage lights, and the ballista towers started firing bolts towards the invading ships. One of the Imperial galleys closing in towards the harbor suddenly floundered in the water. The galley jerked sharply, then several of the crew were thrown overboard by the sudden stop. A sharpened log was jutting out from the bowels of the ship as they hit the harbor under water defenses. Screams rang out as the water rushed in from the torn bottom of the galley. The slaves chained to their seats screamed in panic and pleaded with their masters to release them, but the imperial crew was too busy trying to save themselves to care for the slaves. The struggling slaves drowned as the galley sunk underwater, together with the crew who couldn't swim or were overburdened with armor. The other galleys quickly slowed down following the disastrous end of one of their own ships. Crew members were dispatched to the bow of the ships to watch out for any hidden underwater dangers. As the galley slowed, the harbor defenses had time to fire their weapons at the Imperials, wrecking bloody carnage aboard the crowded decks. The Imperial galleys returned fire with their onboard catapults and ballistas, sending bolts and firebombs at the harbor. As the distance between the Imperial fleet and the harbor shortened, several more galleys got tangled up with underwater traps, while the harbor defense's accuracy went up, striking more and more galleys. Suddenly, a thick fog exploded out from the lead ships of the Imperial fleet. The thick fog hit the Imperial ships and the defensive fire from the harbor ceased temporarily. The Imperials, taking the lure into the attacks from the harbor, quickly closed the distance. A sudden wall of fire erupted from the sea before the harbor as the Alliance Mages cast a massive firewall spell to deter the approaching ships hidden inside the fog. The intense heat forced the Imperial ships to a halt and the battle switched to the Mages from both sides as they started throwing spells blindly at each other. The spells burned down on ships unlucky enough to be in the path and the harbor also caught fire from the Imperial spells and firebombs. Northgate, Frontier City a massive wood and steel gates towered over five meters slammed back against the hinges as the ranks of bronze men hit the gates running. The causeway into the gates was wide enough for three large wagons to move through side by side, and over a hundred of the bronze men stormed through the opening. The Alliance soldiers froze when they saw the ajar gates suddenly slammed wide open and a force of black-clad and pirate troops rushed in. The sudden charge knocked the Alliance soldiers back on their heels, and the slaughter began. Western Wall, Frontier City Bors cursed the siege towers suddenly appeared in the dark. He quickly pulled the soldier by his arm and yelled, Tell the towers to attack the siege towers! Ignore the damn dragons! They can't hit anything in the dark! The soldier saluted and ran off with his armor clanking away towards the nearest ballista tower, while Bors rallied his men. We got a siege towers coming. I want three lion crossbows to welcome them when they hit the walls. Those without a crossbow go find a shield and form a shield line. Captain Boss! A young voice called out from the chaos and Boss saw the young Meccan officer that spoke with him the other day. Ah? Boss frowned as he tried to remember the Meccan's name. Lancer! The Meccan gave a false smile. You remember me? Ah, yes, Captain Lancer. Boss nodded before asking, Do you have anything important? He gestured towards the looming siege tower, pushing by a small army of slaves and land dragons. I, uh, I was hoping that you could advise me on, on what to do, do now. The Meccan looked embarrassed. Don't you have someone with experience advising you? Boss looked shocked. Even Taurus, listening at the side, shook his head in pity. Um, no. 
The youngster looked away as he wanted to bury himself in a hole. My men all knew at this war thing. Gods be damned, Boss cursed loudly. You mean everyone in your troop is just a bunch of rich noble sons that dreams of glory and cunning, but no one had the brains to teach you how to fight. We know how to fight. One of the aides standing next to Lancer yelled out hotly, Watch your tongue, or I'll have it removed, mercenary dog. Boss stared into the incredulous wonder at the tone of the mechan aide, while Tars laughed at his side. Boy, go home, don't play war here. You will just sully the dead, Tara snapped. Who are you calling boy? The aide growled and half drew his sword. I'll cut your tongue. Instantly, the man of the last company drew the pointed blades and the three Meccan soldiers cutting off the words of the aide. Enough, boss roared. He pointed to the siege engines coming in and said, Our problems are out there, not amongst ourselves. His men lowered their weapons, but continued to glare with hostility at the Meccans. Lancer looked pale at the actions of Bors's men, and turned to his aid and snapped, Quiet! I... I'm terribly sorry for my men's words, Lancer said. I apologize on his behalf. It's all right, Boss waved away Lancer's attempts to apologize. We have bigger problems here. We need to get the towers to start to shoot at the enemy siege tower, Boss said quickly. The Empire Dragons are a lure to distract the ballistas. There is no use in trying to shoot in the dark those dragons. They won't hit anything. Boss pointed out, while they are wasting their time reloading, the Empire Siege Tower will hit the walls. What can we do? Lancer lost as he walked up to the battlement and peered out. If the ballistas can't stop them. Shield wall on the front and archers behind, Boss said. Shields to hold off the flood of enemies while the archers pick them off. I... I understand. Lancer turned to one of his men and said something. His man nodded and was about to leave, but the last company men blocked his way with hostile looks. Boss sighed inwardly and nodded to his men, who then opened up a path for the Meccan. If you want to survive this, we need to work together. Captain, someone yelled. Attack! More siege towers in sight! Damn, Boss cursed. Men, to your posts. North Gate, Frontier City. With the gate held by Empire forces, the Imperial legions switched their focus to the gate, leading the reinforcements to support the attack. The Meccan's commanders, seeing the situation turning dire, ordered their troops off the walls to fall back towards the inner walls. The Empire troops, sensing victory, attacked with renewed vigor, chasing down and retreating Alliance soldiers. The city's residents, seeing the retreat of their soldiers, panicked and headed towards the inner city the jamming up the roads and gates, adding more confusion and panic. The Grey Lord cursed from his vantage and view of the castle and watched his city burn. Close the inner walls gates, order all soldiers that could not make it inside the walls to delay the enemy. But how about the people? The civic ministers asked. Ignore them. If the Empire takes the inner city, all is lost. Western Wall, Frontier City. Captain... We got enemies coming in from the right side, a soldier reported, panting to Boss. What? Boss asked. From the right? Yes, they are fighting on the walls. Taurus, Boss yelled. Take a troop and go check it out. Taurus nodded and called for his men before leading them towards the right tower of the wall. As Taurus exited the tower, he found an entire section of the wall with heavy attack. Enemy soldiers in the blue livery were streaming out on the far end of the tower and throwing themselves into the swords and spears of the defenders. What happened? Taurus grabbed a nearby Meccan soldier and asked. The north gates were breached, the frightened soldier replied. I don't know how, but they were inside the walls. You, 
Taurus pointed at one of the men. Go inform the captain of this news. Go. Taurus turned back to the Meccan soldier. Where's Captain Lancer? The captain? The soldier looked confused. I think he's in the front somewhere. All right. Follow me. Taurus yelled as he's surrounded by Meccan soldiers. We need to go stop them from destroying the flank. The Meccan soldiers looked at each other in fear and confusion. But, 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 they hesitated. Are you men of Mecca? Each said in a low voice, Did you not join the army to fight against the Empire? Should you fall to here, what will happen to your families and land? Taurus continued to speak to the gathered soldiers. What will later generations speak of your actions in the future? Now, you can make a difference in this battle. Taurus's voice lowered as he caught the men's attention. Fight for your people, or be a coward. History will know your name as heroes, or as losers. What say you? Taurus suddenly yelled, asking his own men. We fight! Taurus's men yelled out. How about all of you? Taurus's voice boomed as he gestured to the Meccan soldiers. What say you? We fight! What say you? We fight! Whips snapped against the backs of the slaves, pushing the siege towers forward, alongside a couple of bellowing land dragons. The heavy metal wheels creaked as it rolled over uneven terrain. Once in a while, the whole mobile tower shook as a ballistic bolt slammed into the armored walls. Some of the bolts bounced off, and a few managed to find a weak spot amongst the steel plates hung onto the tower's frame. The lucky bolt penetrated and skewered the unlucky soldiers hiding inside, the force of the bolt causing the bodies to explode. Ranks and ranks of legions and slave warriors followed closely behind the towers as they advanced. The Imperial Dragons, having done their duty as decoys for the city's ballista, engaged the city dragons using superior tactics and experience. Dragons soon flew off the skies, some landing on the legions and the over the walls, crushing anyone unlucky to be in their way into a bloody meat paste. The city district outside the inner walls was mostly lower class residents and workshops. The Empire troops slowly flooded in. They started to raise the buildings and pillage whatever valuables that they could get their hands on. The people hiding in the houses were dragged out and gathered in an area to be sorted as slaves. Those that resisted were cut down on the spot, terrifying those to witness the brutality. The Alliance soldiers locked outside of the inner wall tried to surrender to the Empire, but were cut down by Imperial soldiers too crazed to care. Some Alliance officers managed to rally their men and they fought a desperate stand against the narrow city streets. Soon word came from the South Harbor had fallen, the Imperial raiding galleys started to land their crews and attack in the south gates, causing more panic to spread throughout the city. All this while, the rock sat in his mount and watched with a satisfied smile on his face at a successful attack. In the morning, we dine at the Grey Lord's table. End of chapter. Chapter 207 The Retreat Western Wall, Frontier City the grinding siege towers slammed against the city walls with a bone-jolting crash and a ram dropped down against the battlements. War cries rang out by the hundreds of throats, followed by the slave warriors as they leapt over the bodies of the dead and onto the walls where Captain Boss and his men had formed a shield wall before the ram. Loose! Boss roared as the Empire slave warriors charged out of the siege tower. Heavy twangs came from the crossbows and bows released by the double rank of archers sheltered behind the shield walls. The volley of arrows and bolts hammered into the first wave of attackers. The force of the volley slammed bodies backwards into their comrades behind. 
as the bodies fell that caused the others to rear and stumble over them. Boss yelled the next command, Spears, forward thrust. <sighs> the men armed with spears thrust from behind the protective shields, stabbing at the enemy while the bowmen reloaded. Again, bows, loose. Another body was fired, and the closed distance ignoring the light armor of the slave warriors and blood rained down on the lower floors. The slave warriors screamed in pain and fear as they were brutally cut down by arrows and spears. Suddenly, a heavy clash of shields came from behind, and the phalanx of the black shields appeared from the front of the stairs of the siege tower. It's the black scorpions! Someone yelled as the imperial legion shoved the slave warriors out of their way as they stormed across the ramp. Slaves fell screaming as they were knocked off the ramp and down onto the hard ground below. Loose! The bolts and arrows hammered into the shields of the black scorpions, some penetrating hard enough to nail the shield's bearer arms to the shields. Suddenly, the shields parted slightly, exposing a row of hand crossbows which shot out and slammed into the last company's shield line. Some lucky bolts hit the exposed archers in the back and the veteran legions charged across the short causeway. Charge! The two lines of shields slammed into each other, and the heavier legion infantry managed to win in mass and strength against the last company soldiers. The last company soldiers fell back and quickly reformed up and surrounded the group of black scorpion troops holding at the ramp. Don't let them have a foothold on the walls, Bolsh yelled while he put his weight behind one of the shield bearers. He grunted with the effort as they attempted to shove the black legion towards the ramp. Push them back! Push them off the ramp! The archers abandoned their ranged weapons and added to the weight of the shield line. Both sides of men shoved and cursed, too close to use any weapons as they tried to push each other back. More and more last company men came and supported the shield line, with some archers kept the flanks and attempting to snipe at the enemy. The wooden ramp unslicked with blood, couple of soldiers slipped, which gave an opening leading the last company, whom's men's muscles bulged and grunted with effort shoving the enemy off the ramp and down the walls, screaming to their deaths. Captain, message for you. Boss extracted himself from the shield wall and rested at the rear. What is it? The messenger sent by Taurus quickly detailed a situation happening at the section of the wall. What? Enemies are breaking in from the right flank? Boss repeated in a low voice. The messenger nodded in confirmation. Hell, what is going on here? Boss turned back to look at the burning city. Is the city burning more, or is it just me? The message frowned and said, It seems like a fire is spreading faster. Any news from the wall, Commander? Boss asked. No, sir, these men replied. Something is wrong. Boss stood up and looked around the chaos. Go check on the Commander, he ordered as his aides, before joining the shield wall to repel the attackers again. Pots and hot coals of boiling oil were carried carefully by the men who flung the contents of the pots into the opening of the siege tower. The scalding hot oil and red coals cooked the soldiers behind the shield walls, melting fire and setting at damp timbers of the siege tower on fire. The siege towers were doused in water to prevent the defenders from setting the whole construct into flames easily, but the flammable oil was over the timbers and cooked the men trapped inside. The men at the top tried to retreat down the stairs, but the other soldiers at the bottom wanted to charge up trapping everyone inside, as they either cooked to death or died from asphyxiation and suffocation. Captain, the men who went to look for the war commander came running back. We can't find the commander or any other nobles or officers. What? Boss asked, stepping back from the burning tower. 
we saw what appeared to be soldiers with imperial colors in the streets too. One of the men reported, I think the northern walls have fallen. Damn, Boss cursed as he glared at the burning city. What do we do now, sir? The man asked nervously. Do we still fight or, um... Send word to Taurus, Boss snapped. Tell him to fall back to our area now and bring as many troops as he can. Northern Gate, Frontier City. The rock leisurely rode through the gates flanked by two ranks of heavily armored soldiers and majors. He breathed in deeply at the smell of burnt flesh and ashes in the air and smiled. Go, enjoy yourselves, take the city, take everything. The men gave a chorus of approval before they charged madly into the burning city while he laid his eyes on the Grey Lord's castle in the distant. Western Wall, Taurus stood behind a ladder of shields held by Meccan soldiers and lunged his rapier over the shoulders of the heaving men, striking an exposed arm or face with pinpoint accuracy. The Meccan officer, Lancer, watched with wide-eyed wonder at the way Taurus worked his rapier with finesse. He scrunched up his face together with the healer crudely stitched the wound together on his shoulder where the flailing axe punched through the ornate armor. As he fell, his men nearly broke and ran away. It was then that Taurus suddenly appeared with a small troop of soldiers and single-handedly rallied the soldiers to his side and rescued Lancer. Should Taurus be a few minutes late, Lancer's position would have been overrun by the Imperials. He leaned against the parapet of the wall while the healer fussed over his wounds. Fighting back the pain, Lancer stood up and looked around him. The broken siege tower sat just a dozen feet away from his section of the wall, where several ballista bolts had pierced it, breaking the construct's protective spells before some mage managed to electrocute everyone inside the tower with some lightning spells. Captain, we can't find Commander Otum, one of the Lancer's aides reported, and none of the staff nor nobles are around. Where could they have gone? Lancer frowned. He watched Taurus fighting off the blood of blue Imperials pouring out from the walled tower. Could they have all fled? But why? Lord Taurus! A soldier from the last company called out. The captain wants you all to fall back now. Seems like the north wall has fallen and the enemy's inside the city too. What? Taurus and Lancer both looked surprised at the news. Captain Lancer, pull your men back. Tell those ballista crews in the towers to fall back to Captain Boss now. g got it Lancer replied, getting his men to pull out of the walls. What about you and your men? We'll hold the enemy off as a rear guard, Taurus grinned. Don't worry, we are very experienced in rear guard combat, but leave your archers behind to support us. Lancer nodded, secretly impressed more and more by Taurus's confidence. Archers support the rear guard, the rest pull back and head to the next section. Move. The Meccan soldiers grabbed their wounded and started evacuating to the next section of the wall by moving through the connecting tower. The ballista crews warned about the fall of the northern walls quickly abandoned their weapons, but not before burning the ballistas to prevent the enemy from using it. Taurus and his men slowly stepped back as the Imperial troops constantly threw themselves against their flimsy shield wall, while archers on both sides exchanged arrows and bolts. Grab all the oil and flammable things, Taurus ordered his men, who quickly scrounged up some lamp fuel and pots still steaming with oil. Douse the wall with the oil. The men quickly poured the flammable liquid onto the floor, the oil mixing with the sticky blood and bodily fluids. The men, holding off the Imperials, carefully stepped back as they strained their bodies against the hammer blows of the swords, spears, and arrows. After breaking off more than twenty paces, Taurus turned to the archers and yelled, Flaming arrows! Set the ground on fire! 
The archers complied by dripping their arrows' heads into sticky resin mixture and lit them with a fire, their slow-burning match. The volley of flaming arrows struck around the area where they had doused in oil, but none of the flaming arrows managed to ignite the trap. The archers, in a panic, shot off more flaming arrows, trying to hit the oil-soaked ground, but the crowd of Imperials was blocking most of the shots. Taurus cursed inwardly as he saw the efforts of the archers were not working at all. Suddenly, a shrieking ball of fire landed amongst the Imperials and a split second later, the oil caught fire and flames licked up from underneath the armored boots of the Imperials. They screamed in panic and fear and attempted to beat the flames away by stomping their feet, only to have them burn oil stick to their boots. For the Imperial in disarray, the pressure against the shield wall lightened, allowing Taurus and his men to disengage easily. As Taurus entered the connecting tower, he saw a sweating, pale-faced Lancer leaning against the wall, heaving. Thanks for the spell, Taurus grinned and helped Lancer up. You saved me earlier. It's the least I can do. Lancer smiled back and allowing Taurus to support him. But that's all I can cost. My magic aptitude is very low, actually. That's one fireball is more than enough, my friend. Taurus replied as half the carried Lancer threw the tower to the other side of the walls. Not bad for a virgin battle. With the fall of the North Wall and the eventual retreat of the forces from the West Wall, the Empire troops virtually faced no opposition as they flooded through the gates. Captain Bors, noting the situation of the city has become dangerous, quickly ordered the men to form up and head towards their camp to escort the dependents to safety. He had earlier sent several runners to order the camp to prepare to move, in an instant, as the enemy had breached the walls. His people, being on the run for many a year, has perfected and packed the camp quickly despite having a soft life in the city for a few months. By the time Bors and his men with the other Meccan and Falarian soldiers that tagged along reached their camp, their people had already packed the tents and as many supplies as they could carry. Pack animals like land dragons and mufflers were stolen from nearby and were all hitched up and ready to move. Where to now? Taurus asked. Boss grabbed the reins of a war dragon and a deft move. He mounted up onto his saddle. To the west gate. End of chapter. Chapter 208. The Cabal. A figure stirred under the cover made out of a soft animal skin. He carefully removed himself from the tangle of bodies cuddled up against him and strolled butt naked to the large open balcony, his bare feet brushing against the carpet of animal furs. From the vantage point of his balcony, the ex-United Nations of Mankind Marine Corps, 3rd Sergeant Ramon, took in the breath of fresh air while grinned wildly. He looked at the city he had shaped slowly, come awake, and sat down on a wicker chair to observe the sun rising over the plains. A wooden palisade, ring as tiny kingdom, and further out a larger, taller concrete wall was being built to replace the palisade. Rocky houses made out of mud and stone bricks were arranged in a ring around his fortified palace, also made out of local bricks and concrete. My lord, the bath is ready. A soft, feminine, timid voice spoke out from inside the room, and Raman stood up and stretched before he followed the scantily clad slave to the bath. A gilded gold-colored ring on the neck of the voluptuous slave, which indicated her status as a favored slave. The slave collar on a slave indicated his or her position, and the gold collar generally is for slaves of the masters of high ranks or statuses, while silver collars are for slaves of some status or a position, and iron collars are for the lowest of the slaves. 
Should a slave attempt to escape and was caught, they would be beaten till within inch of their lives before slaving away at the saltpeter production factories for life. Ramon entered the Turkish-style bath and allowed the girl to wash him before he sank into the waters as she massaged his shoulders while he soaked in the water. After washing up, Ramon had a full-body massage before he pulled the girl down and ravaged her. Fully refreshed and dressed to a pair of white spider-silk robes, he entered the dining room and to find the rest of his gang already feasting on the food laid out on the table buffet-style. Yo, here comes our great sultan! Former Petty Officer Second Class Ivan Pavlo greeted Raman when he entered. Good morning, Raman grinned as he gathered men and sat down at the head of the long table. Anything of immediate concerns? Some of the York Village chiefs are grumbling that we are taking their men away from them and we're destroying their traditions and beliefs. Chunk Kok, the only Chinese amongst the deserters, said he was in charge of administration here. They complain that their people all no longer have the honor of their lives. Ha! As if we care about what they want, Nicholas DeVos, running the recruitment and manpower department, said, We did not force their young men to join us anyway. <laughs> but boss, I must say, using a pyramid scheme on these dumb aliens is a damn good idea. Nicholas laughed. We sell them guns and ammunition in return for slaves, food, and trade goods. And we don't have to worry about a rebellion from the orcs. Ivan wiped his greasy fingers on the tablecloth. They are so stupid to fall for it. As long as they each recruit people who are willing to invest in our weapons, they get a small percentage of the investment. And if their recruitment members also recruit more people to invest in, they too get a part of the investment as a reward. <laughs> Seeing those dumb orcs doing some sales is so damn funny. Ivan laughed together with Nicholas. Ultimately, all the profit goes to us. Don't worry about the local chiefs, I'll be meeting with them later, Ramon replied and picked up a cold meat from the plates. Siddharth, how are the fabricators coming along? Pretty well, Siddharth replied. We are in the midst of assembling a third fabricator, but we're pretty short-handed here. He gestured to the table. Only two of us are from engineering and with the knowledge to work the parts. Well, some of you guys that are free need to help out with the fabricators, Ramon said. We need those tools to keep enjoying the life here, yes? The men around the table nodded in agreement. But Aron, I want you to keep your focus on training our core orc troops. You are excused from working on the fabricators. Ramon detailed out his work plan. Yes, boss, Aaron nodded. We need more sturdy weapon designs. Those damn orcs keep breaking the guns. Ramon sighed. Well, I see what I can come up with. How goes the training? Well, I got over a thousand hot-blooded and grouchy orcs who keep trying to prove that he's better orc over the others, Aaron said. Had to shoot a few of them to keep the others in line. The cannon revolvers that you made are pretty deadly in close range. If they could stop trying to use the guns as melee weapons and breaking them in the process, Aaron said. The revolver cannons were a simple design with a revolving chamber able to hold a 25mm black powder short-case round. The revolver barrel and frame was made out of carbon steel and was too large for the human and elves' hands, as it was specifically designed for orcs. The orcs were able to hit a target up to 15 meters away accurately with the revolver and blow huge holes out of the standard Empire plate mail. As for the rocket guns, Aaron grimaced, its accuracy is something to be desired. I am training the orcs to volley fire with the rocket guns, and I don't want to be under the receiving end of that volley. The rocket guns were another design made by Raman. 
The weapon is similar to the M79 grenade launcher used in the 1960s, the difference being the larger hand grip. No flip-up sights and a different ammunition. It fires a 40mm black powder explosive shot with a crude rocket motor. The rocket is loaded singly into the brake action of the gun and fired with a contact fire rune. It had an effective range of 400 meters and 4 seconds of fuel for the rocket to burn. It was highly inaccurate, but the effects were devastating to the receiving, and the orcs loved it. Keep training them. I don't expect them to be marine standards of training, Roman replied. All right, I think there's a delegation of traders waiting for me to talk business. I leave it to you boys to do what you need to do. But that Roman wiped his lips with a cloth before he headed off to the meeting area where the group of merchants were awaiting his arrival. He was chosen a site of his city carefully, building his city directly on top of the freshwater oasis in the plains, which was also near a major trade route. His actions, of course, incited the ire of the local orc clans as he took possession of a major water source. Two orcs were chatting amongst themselves while standing guard over the door into the meeting room stood straight and saluted military style at Roman as he approached. They pushed the doors open for Roman to enter and returned the gossip once the doors were closed behind them. In a large meeting room were a long wooden table of comfortable chairs laid out around. Several merchants dressed in rich and colorful clothing to showcase their status stood up as Roman came in. Greetings, Sultan! I heard you guys seek safe passage over the plains. Roman got to business immediately. Yes, my lord! The merchants looked curiously at the strange being seated in front of them. We'd like to hire your men to provide escorts. I've got a better plan, Roman grinned. How about setting up a trading hub here? A trading hub? The merchants looked at each other. Why do we want to trade here in the middle of nowhere? I offer a free trade zone here in my city, Roman replied. It's free trade. No trade taxes. What's a free trade zone? The merchants asked curiously. Roman grinned, knowing that he had gotten the merchant's attention and started to explain what a free trade zone is and the benefits of it. The meeting went on until afternoon and Roman came out of the room with all smiles and his pouchy face. Finally, it was all coming together, Roman thought to himself happily. It had been almost half a year since they had run away from the ship and established his city-state here in the plains. If it wasn't for the fact that for powerful weapons, the orcs' countless raids on his building cities would have destroyed his dreams. Luckily, he managed to sell his pyramid scheme of investing in his weapons to the orcs who paid in slaves, valuables, food, and trade goods, which increased his wealth and manpower greatly. He even accepted contracts of servitude by the orcs if they couldn't pay, and while sales incentives and commissions, he formed a medieval army of sales executives that strived to hit the end-of-month KPIs. All these generated incoming and the manpower has word spread out amongst the surrounding cities and towns of the new city that offered weapons and items of the utmost quality. His city mostly consisted of orcs and slaves, while a mix of merchants setting up shops and services here. As only one can offer to buy property, any city will automatically become a citizen, which has its own benefits, like exemption from paying entrance fees and water taxes. These activities, of course, did not go well with the orc nomadic clans living in the plains as young orcs lured by the promise of riches by the orcish shellsmen. The orc elders were also unable to do much as Roman was smart enough to offer trade deals with the surrounding clans that would force the clans to rely on him solely in the future for weapons and other resources. 
and with these weapons and an army of orc soldiers bonded to him with magical contract, no orc clan was stupid enough to attack him anymore. Ramon grinned as he envisioned what the city would grow into, and unlike those damn stuck-up officers trying to regimentalize everything, this was what freedom was all about. But he still has to be mindful of the power of his privileged colleagues. Those people, praying soldiers, might be weak in dealing with the world, but they still have plenty of firepower to destroy everything that he has built up. And for that, he needed to both economically and militarily strong that those UN crapheads would have to think twice about attacking him. Now his city population is almost 15,000 strong, with another 5,000 traffic daily at least. People are flocking to his city in waves due to the expansionist empire, which was aggressively expanding its borders. Sooner or later, the empire will come knocking, and Ramon knew enough to stop the empire is not to defeat it, but to make it too painful and expensive for them to continue. But he needs an army, and for that, Ramon planned to unite the orcs under one flag. His flag. With the powerful orcs in his pocket, he will have a force that no one could contest against he will be king. As he walked towards the Great Hall, the doors opened and two of the largest specimens of orcs Ramon had ever seen. He strolled confidently through the open doors and sat down on a throne-like seat and a raised platform, where a large group of grumbling orc chieftains and elders were gathered under the watchful guns of the orc soldiers. They watched cautiously as beady eyes at Ramon, who looked down on them like he was their god. Welcome to the Cabal. End of chapter Chapter 209 The City of Slaves The boy stood up and stretched his lean body while he rubbed his strained neck. He'd been carving binding spells onto the iron collars of his work table for the past four hours non-stop. His workshop lit brightly by huge open windows that occasionally brought some breeze from the plains. Master Aslan, a slim girl, barely the boy's height, gently knocked on the door and entered with a tray of steaming food. It's your midday meal. Huh? Ah, Teresa! Aslan gave a bright smile and quickly gestured her in. He quickly swept a stack of iron chokers to the side of his work table and even helped her take the tray off her hands. He set the tray down on the table before putting another chair over for her to sit. The girl quickly refused the seat and hurriedly rejected the offer. Master Aslan, I got work to do in the kitchens. Aslan shook his head and firmly pulled her down to the chair. Sit and share some food. I can't finish them all, but, but, Teresa looked flustered, it isn't my place to dine with you. Aslan sighed and looked at the rusty iron collar around her neck. She wore a simple grey homespun coarse dress and somewhat whitish-grey strained apron. Her hands were rough from the constant work in the kitchen galleys. She had a heart-shaped face and a large greenish eyes that attracted Aslan a lot, and her blonde hair was a bun up in a knot. Aslan thought that if she cleaned up a bit and dressed better, she would look quite pretty. Eat! He pushed a platter of meat and boiled roots and gravy in a small basket of freshly baked bread in front of her. But, but, but it's not proper, she insisted, her hands gripping the apron tightly. If the housekeeper sees me sitting here and eating your meal, she will have me whipped. Relax, I'll protect you. Aslan patted his chest and gave her a reassuring smile at the frightened scullery maid. Quickly eat while it's still hot. You need more food. You're all skin and bones. The girl sighed and gave in, picked up a piece of bread and nibbled it on her nervously. Aslan cut her steak and pushed it to her and watched her savagely her food with joy. After the meal was over, Teresa quickly packed the plates away, hang on tray, and quickly retreated out of Aslan's workshop.
bowing to the closed doors. Aslan's smile vanished as the door closed, and he thought back to the day that he was rescued by Ramon and his men in those strange wagons of their forest. Ramon promised him revenge, and Aslan bent a knee and vowed to serve Ramon with all of his ability, as long as he can get his revenge. Aslan sighed as he looked at the stack of collars that he was assigned to put spells to bind and restrain the will of its master, and, with a sudden sweep of his hands, he flung the collars onto the floor, the iron collars rattling loudly in the workshop. Ah! Stronghold of the Cabal Teresa moved quickly back to the kitchen, where she placed the dirty dishes into a wooden tub, and she went out to the courtyard where a water pump sat. She worked the pump, and water splashed out into the wooden pail under the hose. When she was caught by the orc slavers and raided her small village, she thought that she would become some worker in the orc mines, or worst, sold to the empire to toy with some nobles. But instead, she was brought here and traded for some strange, shining, cylindrical, but exotic-looking items that pulled a large wooden chest. When the first came here, she was assigned to some orc foreman that was very generous with his whips. She and hundreds of others were forced to make bricks out of mud, straw, and crushed rocks. Over time, she found that there were as much as 10,000 slaves laboring away to build the city in this wide plains. The first to be built was the stronghold, where she briefly caught a glimpse of some fat man in a strange clothing that the orcs seemed to follow. All the slaves were forced to bow and touch their forehead against the ground when the sultan was in their presence. Those who refused were whipped to within an inch of their lives and returned to work for their masters. Those attempted to escape and were caught by those large wolves of the orcs were crucified. Their rotting bodies left nailed on the crosses and purposely left, staked around the camps of slaves to remind them of the consequences of defying the sultan. When the city buildings were finally built, the sultan announced that the slaves could have their own homes and even pay. They can buy their freedom back with the money that they saved and no longer become a slave but a free man and even a citizen of the city. Teresa looked at the magical binding contract that stated that she owed the sultan a debt of totaling of 57 pieces of gold crowns, and if she were repaid that amount in full, she would become free. The breakdown cost of the debt was even listed out in the cost of buying them to food, lodging, and even welfare. To every commoner, a single gold crown was already represented a large amount of wealth, yet this contract gave the hope to everyone for a chance to gain back their freedom, if they worked hard enough to save up. But she, like many, did not realize that there was a very fine print on the contract that said that there was an annual interest fee of 25%. So she signed the contract as the other offers was to slave for life working in the mines of construction, stating her skill sets when was given an iron collar that binds the contract she signed with her own blood. Slaves with useful skills were sorted out and assigned jobs that could make use of their knowledge and skills properly. Those that were unskilled were sent off to some mines and farms to become laborers. She was lucky to be picked up for work inside the palace of the sultan. The stronghold of the cabal, despite barely having any skills or useful knowledge, only then knowing how to cook. She got assigned to be a scullery maid, cleaning pots and pans while doing other menial household chores. Every week she earned a pitiful four copper coins for which lodging and clothes were deducted from the total pay. Her meals, which were mostly leftover bread and soup, and she shared a room with three other girls working in the stronghold too. 
Teresa found that the city was built very differently to the one city that she'd ever been in, that her parents brought her to when she was a child. The roads were laid out perfectly, and the slaves had to follow the instructions given strictly or be punished. The city was surprisingly cleaner than that that she was expecting from the orcs and slaves living in it. A small army of slaves was assigned to clean the streets and sewers every day, and no one was allowed to dirty the streets or they would face punishments. There was a public whipping of a couple of slaves who dumped night soil out in the streets of the Orkish forces, quickly dragged the two slaves, pleading for their lives, to the punishment square, where they rang the bell to gather everyone to watch them deal out the punishments. Orc slaves living in the city wore a metal-type collar, while those slaves that did not sign the contract of debt to the sultan wore leather collars and were not allowed in the city after dark. They slept in work camps outside of the city and were mostly miners, builders, or farmers. Brutish orc enforcers armed with strange tubular weapons manned the walls, gates, and even patrolled the streets regularly. They dealt with anyone breaking the rules and law with a brutalness. Even the merchants who passed by had to follow the rules strictly. The outlying orc clans watched the city grow and grew greedy for the wealth of the city and sent constant raids, hoping to steal slaves and pillage the city. The orcs' strange tubular weapons roared as loud as thunder, frightening the slaves, and at the same time, those strange weapons cut down the raiding hordes easily. Over time, Teresa and the other slaves grew accustomed to the weapons and even felt pride each time the orc enforcers beat back the raiders, some even cheering for the enforcers, much to the amusement of the orc enforcers themselves. Another strange thing that happened was that the sultan decreed that everyone, including the orcs, were to take classes in schools that were built. So, other than her work duties in the kitchen, Teresa had to go take classes, learning words and mathematics. Most of the slaves were illiterate, but those knowledgeable that performed well in the written tests were given better jobs as clerks or administrators. It was also at this time when she met the strange boy, also known as Master Aslan, who seemed to take an interest in her. Training Fields of the Cabal Aaron paced up and down the firing line marked out by gorging the ground with a bayonet. Ball up! The ranks of orcs excitedly strolled up as one and lined up before the firing line, drawing out the revolver cannons. Twenty meters down the line was a row of poles staked into the ground with the Empire plate mail attached to them. Take aim! Iron barked as the orcs raised their heavy revolvers up and into the iron stance, using a crude leaf sights and aimed at the targets. Fire! The grouts of rotten eggs smelling white smoke burst out from the firing line as the orcs squeezed the triggers. The area around the targets exploded with heavy shelled hammers over the area. The more accurate shots hammering the plate mails and blowing blooming metal flowers at the exit wound. Fire! Another volley roared out. This time the fire was accurate as the thick smoke limited visibility. Some of the orcs were even waving the smoke away and coughing. Fire! 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 The plate mail targets barely held together by the end of the fifth volley. Gaping holes and dangling metal plates could clearly be seen and destroyed targets. The orc shooters laughed and whooped with glee at the destruction. Switch weapons! Aaron roared again and the orcs quickly reholstered their revolvers into their holsters that were worn diagonally across their chests before reaching over their shoulders and pulling out the rocket guns. Aim! The orcs raised their rocket guns and rested the buttocks against their thick shoulders, aiming 
as they were taught at the targets while thumbing back the cock in the hammer to arm the weapon. Fire! The volley of sharp pops followed by a shrieking roar of streaks of sparks could be seen in the smoke of the rocket engines of the rockets ignited. The rockets burst out of the barrels and flew out wildly, shrieking towards the targets. Ramon gave an evil smile as he turned his back towards the training field while facing the chiefs and elders watching the weapons demonstrations at the side and asked, Is it better to be feared or respected? I say, is it too much to ask for both? Ramon looked at each of the orcs in the eye. They say the best weapon is one that you never have to use. I respectfully disagree. I prefer a weapon that you can keep firing. Ramon spread his hands out and the targets behind him vanished in a series of explosions. I give you the new age of warfare. End of chapter. Chapter 210. Running the Gauntlet. Eastgate Frontier City. Thousands of people and soldiers from the city crowded around the only exit and still remained free of Imperial troops as they tried to escape the burning city. In the Sea of Chaos, only a small area was in order. The men of the last company, the 19th Guardians, had formed into an infantry square formation, protecting the dependables inside the square. Earlier, they had retreated from the western wall. They found a noble who told them that the east gate still stands, and there are no imperial forces teaching that gate. Boss decided to head towards that gate, in hopes that what the nobles said were true and he could see the north, west, and south districts were on fire. He crudely told Lancer that if he wants to follow along, he is to listen to his command, and Lancer willingly agreed. Boss then told Lancer to have his men go retrieve their families, if they have any in the city, within two hours, and meet up in the east side of the city. Anyone not in time would be left behind. The men of the 19th Guardians were mostly second and third sons from rich families. Boss ordered them, if they bring their families along, they can only bring what they could carry on them. Any excess luggage they were to carry themselves, as the road towards the next city would be very rough. Next, Borst ordered half of his men to go requisite more dragons, land dragons, and supplies from the road ahead. They were relatively unmolested as the Empire troops were hitting the north and west areas of the city, while the south gate was under heavy siege from the Imperial ships. Most of the 19th Guardians returned with their families in tow, but some of the dependents brought extra luggage, citing that it's all their valuables and important things which Bors ignored. You brought it along, you carried it yourself, Bors crudely informed them. No soldiers here will carry your luggage for you, nor will the wagons are for you. Those that came with their own carriages were forced out and the company wounded were placed inside. The soldiers ignored the outraged owners and while their sons tried to calm their families down. Captain, Lancer stood beside Boss, who was mentally counting the number of wagons they had. Most of the people are powerful. They have the means to make life difficult for you if you treat them badly. Why would I care? Boss asked. I am not a Meccan or a Forlorian citizen. Our wounded needs carriages more than their fat asses. Lancer gave a cough of embarrassment, while Taurus at the side laughed. Taurus clapped Lancer's back and said, Come on, you're a soldier. Cuss wounds are normal here. Besides, the important thing is our lives. What can gold do for you if you have no food to buy? Can you eat gold or diamonds? Boss nodded in agreement, before ordering some of his men to dump the excess luggage off of some merchants' wagons that they had secretly piled into. Remove those and load the supplies in. The soldiers dragged the chests off the wagons and without a care just flung them to the side, where the chest broke and rolls of fabric and jewellery spilled out from the broken chests. 
The owners cried as if they'd lost their firstborn, kneeling over the spilled items and trying to gather them up while cursing and threatening the soldiers, who gave them a grin and continued to dump the unwanted luggage off. We need all the supplies, we need to make it to the next city. Boss gave a crude explanation, and we allowed you and your men to bring your family along rather than letting everyone die here. All right, it's time to go. Boss looked back at the western wall. The Imperial soldiers will soon sack the West District. We need to move now. We can't wait any more. With that, Boss ordered the soldiers to form up into a square formation, with all the wagons and dependents in the middle and marched off towards the eastern gate. Halfway there, they found the way blocked by hundreds and hundreds of people attempting to escape by the east gate. Using the blunt ends of the spears and shields, the men forced their way through, ignoring the cries of outrage and battered their way towards the gate. Some of the Meccan and Falarian soldiers quickly attached themselves to the company as they saw that they were disciplined enough to still hold together in a formation, giving them hope to escape this place. As they came within view of the massive gates, Boss frowned as he saw the gates were closed. All right, boys, the gate is within sight. Let's move up. They forced their way to the front and found barricades with Meccan soldiers blocking the gate. People in small groups of twos and threes appeared to allow through the barricade and out from the other side of the door of the gate, paying some fee. Boss yelled, Who's in command here? The soldiers looked at Boss with his mismatched armor and sneered, If you want to pass, it's one gold piece per person. No money, and get lost from here. What? Lancer came up next to Boss and frowned. You bring your officer out here now. The soldiers, seeing Lancer in his guardian armor and his sash of office, paled in fright. Yes, Captain. Uh, wait a moment, please. A short while later, the soldiers returned with a fat officer, who, with an undersized plate mail, who wobbled out of the guardhouse and looked at the group of soldiers with a look of disdain. You want to get out of the city? Yes. Lancer nodded. Out the gates. Let these people out. Deserters! The fat officer yelled and pointed a puny finger at the astonished Lancer. You soldiers are running away from the Empire. Go back to your post and don't blame me for being merciless. Lancer's mouth hung wide open in shock, while Taurus at the side held back laughter at Lancer's expression. Boris's face only turned darker without a word. He turned around and looked at his men's confident faces. Breakthrough! The men roared and charged, stunning the guards at the gate. The fat officer was so shocked that he toppled onto his back and sat on the floor staring at the soldiers, slamming the barricades down and attacking the guards, while civilians at the sides cheered. Traitors! The fat officer tried out and feared. Rebels! It's Coop, your imperial agent! Spies! Traitors! Shut his fat mouth! Boss roared and pointed at the fat officer, who saw several soldiers led by Lanza coming over the broken barricade directly at him. He gave a yelp of fear and quickly crawled to his feet and wobbled off to lock himself in the guardhouse. Most of the guards around the gate were taken by surprise, but a few resisted and were cut down. Quickly, before more guards come, lift the gate bars up. Lancer, bring some of your men to the gatehouse and open the portcullis. The civilians, seeing the soldiers lifting the heavy crossbar off the gate, surged forward to help, while Lancer led some of his men up to the tower into the gatehouse. He used his authority to force his way in and had the portcullis raised. The gates slowly swung open by hundreds of hands and everyone cheered, Move it! Don't push! Boss yelled at the people who quickly ran out of the city. Let's go. Three months later, over the Goblin Sea, specks of white fluffy snow drifted down from the grey skies.
limiting visibility by more than half. The heavy drones and heavy engines rumbled loudly inside the cabin of the seaplane flying over the Goblin Sea. Air Force Corporal Eisen walked onto the metal scaffolding inside the plane where dozens of olive-green cigar-shaped bombs hung on racks. He carefully checked each rack of 50-kilogram cast-iron bombs painted in a dark olive-green with a yellow band around the nose to ensure that the bombs were not knocked loose from their cradles. A total of three bomb racks lined both sides of the scaffolding, and each rack held four bombs. Eisen passed by the legs of the Air Force Private Lucan, who manned the top turret as he headed towards the forward bay of the seaplane bomber. The scaffolding split in two ways, one going up and the other going down. The steps up and the radio, radar and navigation station, and directly to the cockpit, while the steps down led to the crew resting area and the pantry before coming to the access of the nose turret. The flying boat Mariner FB-1 was the latest and largest plane ever built yet by the colony, powered by two heavy 14-cylinder radial engines with a range of over 3,000 kilometers. It can carry a load of 6,500 kilograms. It comes armed with dual 50 caliber air-cooled heavy machine guns for the nose, dorsal and tail turrets, and one each for the blisters amidship. The seagull wing design of the plane had a flight speed of 310 kilometers per hour, allowing it to reach Goblin City within six hours. Seaplanes had to refuel halfway with a special seaplane tender out in the sea as the entire Air Force fleet of mariners made their way to bomb the Goblin's capital. The three mariner bombers were cruising at a speed of 290 kilometers an hour at an altitude of 5,000 meters above sea level. The crew of seven had to wear oxygen masks and thick coats to allow them to function so high up. Mother to Seagull One, the radio came to life just as Eisen sat down at his station. What's your status over? Seagull One to Mother, we're looking fine, Eisen replied while he pulled off chart out. ETA to Tango, 40 minutes, over. Roger. Godspeed, Seagulls out. Egoldan, Eisen called out from his station to the pilots. How's the weather out there? Crap, it's crap, came back the reply from the internal comms. Damn goblins most probably be cozy in some damn cave. Well, Eisen laughed as he said over the comms, we're going to help make them nice and warm. Goblin City. Achoo! Riker, the goblin, sneezed. He rubbed a wet nose and snucked on mucus that collected in his bony fingers. Mm. He looked at the badly built roof walls of the workshop shed and cursed. Dumb builders need to hang by noses. This shivered again, and a gust of wind blew in through the cracks of his shed. Rubbing his shoulders, they were covered in layers of animal skins. He returned to his work, using a crude blade to plane a piece of wood into somewhat flat. The base skeleton of a goblin raid ship laid out amongst him, and he and a dozen other goblins worked on it. Riker dropped his tool and took a deep breath and sneezed again. And at the same time, a massive explosion erupted somewhere outside and shook the workshed madly. Ha! Did I sneeze and something blew up? Skies over the goblin city. Drop, drop, drop! Co-pilot Bomber yelled as he glued his eyes onto the bomb sites as he stationed, his finger flipping down and release switches. The underbelly hatches as he swung open to approach towards the city and opened the release triggered, the cradles holding the bombs open in sequence and the racks of bombs fell. Each plane dropped their loads over the city on locations marked out by Intel to be the construction workshops for goblin ships and where the docking slips and complete ships were. 
Blossoms of explosives swallowed up behind the three planes as the black powder bombs on impact fuses hit the ground, sending massive clouds of black, dirty smoke and fire up into the skies. Nice and warm and toasty. End of chapter. Chapter 211. Battle of Reachfields. The seagull-shaped flying boat hit the choppy waters with a bounce before dipping down again. The pilot pulled back on the throttle, powering down the engines as he fought for controls to keep the plane leveled against the sea. After a few more bounces against the waves, the flying boat's knife bow plowed through the waves, and the pilot slowly eased the throttle to allow the flying boat to push itself next to the massive seaplane tender, the UNS Matador. The twin-hulled seaplane tender had a small flight deck perched on top of the two hulls. Cranes and other heavy-lifting equipment lined the sides of the tender, while the island sat on the starboard side of the top of the deck. The ship's length was measured as 84 meters with a beam of 28.5 meters. The flight deck had two steam catapults with FA-1NC Cobras to launch out the deck space for a helicopter-type aircraft and land and take off. Inside the belly of the tender held eight sea Cobras tightly parked together with two elevators to bring the planes to the top. To retrieve the seaplanes once they were launched, the sea cobras had to land on the sea surface and be picked up by the cranes. The seaplane tender was built by using two old ships brought in by the isles. The hulls were stripped down and refurbished with new materials before the top flight and hangar decks were welded over the two hulls. It was armed with two three-inch guns, one each side of the hull, eight dual 20mm mounts and twelve 50 caliber guns for self-defense. A crew of 139 manned the ship, which barely filled up half the required manpower needed to fully crew the ship. The remaining two flying boats followed the first plane down and soon parked next to the UNS Matador, where the crew of the tender swung the crane over the refueling lines. The FB-1 Mariner crews grabbed the refueling lines and plugged them into the refueling port on the wings while the UNS floating wreck sat a short distance away watching them over. Once refueled, the lead plane powered up its engine propellers and goosed off to allow the next plane to take its place and refuel. Process was repeated for all three boats that were fully refueled, and they gunned their engines to full power and bounced off the waves and back into the skies, doing a single loop around the UNS Matador before flying back to base. Commander Ford grinned as he watched the three flying boats disappear over the snowing horizon. Mission successful. He reported back to the command before he turned his crew and the bridge of the UNS Matador. Good job, people. Now bring us back home. Those green skins won't bother us for some time now. Reachfield's Kingdom of Mecca. The sun disappeared behind the grey clouds and the temperature dropped. Tiny snow drifts fell from the downcast skies before being whipped around in the air by a gust of cold wind. Yet despite the cold weather, thousands and thousands of men and beasts stood side by side, facing each other with weapons and full armor. Banners of various colors represented different allegiances, and companies spluttered in the cold winter air. The men stamped their feet in the cold and rubbed their hands together. The breath of the anxiously awaiting soldiers turned white in the air as both sides stared at each other. Captain Balls cursed under his breath as he rubbed his nose numbed from the cold and wondered why the hell they were fighting in the winter. He looked at his last company men, which grew almost double the last numbers since the retreat from Frontier City, and frowned, wondering how many more we'll get to see the next day. The past few months had been a frenzy of running and fighting. 
The Empire General purposely left the Eastern Gate open so that the demoralized soldiers and citizens would have a halt to run. He instead had his cavalry forces laying in wait to harass the retreating population of soldiers. The constant raids and lack of supplies for many led many to people and soldiers to surrender, giving the Imperials easy victories. The run to the next safe city was like what Bors and his men had fought for many months ago in the constant battles hardened up the inexperienced 19th Guardians led by the youngster, Captain Lancer. After many tough situations, they arrived at the city of Reachfields, where thousands of refugees fearing the Empire had fled there. The normally peaceful city suddenly turned chaotic as thousands of troops from the two-nation alliance rallied there. Defensive trench works were dug and the city walls fortified. Bors and his men were given a billet outside the city and assigned a series of defensive works consisting of dirt walls and wooden palisades to defend. The Empire slowly made its way over to Richfields as it consolidated its forces and also strengthened its supply lines before it made its way over. Now both armies stood facing each other with a distance of ballistas' maximum range away. Troops were formed up in large infantry squares, while archers stood in loose skirmish lines in front of the line troops. Majors formed up behind the shield walls, and the dragon cavalries held the wings of the army. The flying dragons stayed at the rear, waiting for the command to fly. All in all, it was a straightforward battle as the land flat enough for the cavalry and infantry charges, with little hills and forests around to provide concealment to hide troop movements, while the two National Alliance troops were fortified behind defensive works in the front of the city. Suddenly, Black Dots arrived on the Imperial formation and someone yelled, Imperial Dragons! They are attacking. Horns and drums rolled down from the Empire side and the Imperial formation shook into action. They marched forward confidently with the dragons in support overhead, trampling over dozens of farmlands. Make ready, Boss yelled from his barricade. He was standing behind. The Imperials were attacking their fortified position so they had an advantage of cover. His men sat up from the ground and gripped the spear shafts with frozen hands and fingers, resting the long shafts of the spike barrier. The roar of the dragons had Boss looking up to see the pale yellow underbellies of the Alliance dragons flying over them as they sorted against the Imperial dragons to prevent the Imperial dragons from bombarding the Allied troops below. Suddenly, dozens of heavily armed trolls with chains appeared and stormed their way towards the Allied defenses. The Empire hid the trolls and moved them forward in their cages, covered with a white cloth to prevent the Allied troops from spotting them. Bors's face turned pale with horror as he watched the two trolls about three times his height storming over, the thick iron chains digging furrows into the frozen ground as they were dragged along. Blisters, aim for the trolls! Bors turned and yelled, his command being echoed down to the others to the ballister mounted on the large platform towers. The Imperials advanced with shields raised as they came into bow range. Balls marked the terrain for the Allied troops, allowing them to gauge the distance, and the company captains yelled, Loose! Hundreds of black-feathered arrows were released as one. They arced into the air and rained down amongst the advancing Imperials. Cries and screams rose from the Imperials as they weathered the arrows, the unfortunate ones getting hit. The trolls ignored the pinpricks of the arrows and stabbed into the exposed bodies and instead roared with the fury that they charged. The ballistas fired bolt after bolt, reloading as fast as they could to hit the trolls, but were only marginally successful in bringing down the two trolls out of almost fifty of them. 
Bors watched anxiously as the trolls closed the distance rapidly to their position. The arrows and bolts only further irritated them as the two trolls were targeted by the archers and crossbowmen. Tell the mages to hit them with the biggest spells, Bors ordered. Kill those damn things now. The trolls slammed into the fortified dirt walls and spike barricades like they were nothing. Pieces of shrapnel logs torn off by the trolls flew everywhere. Dirt exploded when the trolls hammered their crude iron maces against the earthen walls and sent bodies flying. The brave men stabbed the trolls with their spears and barely drew blood against the roughed, bark-like skin. Several soldiers were swept away back with a swing of its iron mace, their blood splattering across the entire defensive works. Suddenly, cracks of lightning sparked out and impacted the dead center of one of the trolls. The thick iron chest plate glowed red from the spell's impact, and the trolls suddenly jerked danced on the spot. Streamers of smoke appeared from the troll's body, and the smells of burnt meat rose up. The troll gave a last jerk and toppled face down with an earth-shaking crash, and the men cheered wildly. The other troll, seeing its comrade down, roared with fury, and his crushing attacks intensified. Form up! The Imperials are here! Boss roared as he saw a line of blue-coated soldiers coming in with charging range. Form up a shield wall now! The men hesitated as they looked at the carnage wrought by the troll, and the line of blue-coated soldiers approaching. Hurry up! Don't let the Imperials roll over! The troll reared with anger and spotted the soldiers behind him retreating and forming into a shield wall. It delighted as it made it easier for him to smash those puny two legs, and it ran over just as the ballista bolt punctured half of its length into its left shoulder. The sudden force of the ballista bolt threw the troll backwards and directly onto the charging Imperials, who couldn't stop in time, and the heavy body smashed dozens of armored Imperials into a bloody pulp. Good shooting, Boss roared together with the rest of his men. Plug the holes, don't let the Imperials in. Majors, kill that thing now, and someone go behead that troll. More streaks of lightning struck the troll with the impaled bolt in his shoulder, electrifying it. A couple of beefy soldiers armed up with long axes quickly stood over the head of the first fallen troll as they hacked and chopped at the tough neck muscles of the troll before its head rolled off, effectively killing the troll before it regenerated itself. The other soldiers gave a war cry and rushed up back to the original positions. The barricades destroyed by the trolls were quickly shored up with the soldiers armed as shields. The men anxiously readied the spears as the line of blue-coated screaming imperial soldiers slammed into the barricade and charged as the dying began again. As the sky grew darker, the imperial troops pulled back to lick their wounds, leaving behind hundreds and hundreds of dead and dying. The day's battle had ended without any side having an advantage over the other. Ball sat down to steel helmet and watched the people sieving through the wreckage of the bodies to find anyone still alive. Their own dead were collected while the Imperials were set aside and burned. Others picked up weapons and equipment and piled everything onto one side to be taken to the company's blacksmith to work on. Damn cold day, isn't it? Ball said as Taurus and Lancer came up to him. How bad? We lost 117 today and another 342 wounded, Taurus gave the butcher bull. We have another 28 seriously wounded, and they might not live till tomorrow. Damn! Boss looked down and spat. See if we can repair the barricades and walls. Lancer frowned and asked. Captain, we can't keep having our people die without any replacements. At this rate, sooner or later there will be no one left in the company. 
So what do you want us to do? Boss asked as he stood and loomed over Lancer. Run away? No, not run away, Lancer replied as he stood his ground against Boss. We need to recruit more people to the company. End of chapter. Chapter 212. Pyramid Scheme. The Great Ocean Plains. Ex-war chief Oka grinned as he counted out the number of slaves that were being used to exchange for the dreaded boom-booms from the cabal. He placed his meaty arm over the clearly disgruntled orc, who just paid twenty slaves just to buy these weapons. You no worry, Oka gave the salesman-like smile. You bring slaves gold, you get boom-booms. More slaves are gold, more boom-booms. The orc shrugged off his arm and asked, So where are my boom-booms? No hurry, no hurry. Urka raised his hands up in peace before he gestured one of his lackeys over with a wooden crate. Here are your boom-booms, one for every four slaves. The orc opened up the wooden crate and pulled out a revolver cannon, marveling at its design and pointed at the distance and squeezed the trigger a few times. Why no boom-boom, he demanded. Fake. Urka and his lackeys laughed at the angry expression on the orc's face, which prompted the men to pull out swords and axes. Urka and his lackeys laughed even harder at the menacing display of force before Urka pulled out his own revolver cannon and casually fired it at one of the orc buyer's men. The heavyweight bullet blew a huge chunk of flesh out of the arm of the axe-wielding grunt. The surprised orc roared out in pain and looked at the remains of his left arm where a strain of muscle was left connecting his forearm together. It held its shot-off forearm together and stared blankly at the shock and kicked it before it collapsed down from loss of blood. The smoke of the roar of the revolver cannon slowly faded away, leaving the buyer and his men in awe and fear at the power of the weapon, while the chained-up slaves screamed in fear and wet themselves. Boom! Boom! Urka laughed. He holstered his weapon and reached out and grabbed the empty revolver off the stunned orc buyer's hand and broke open the chamber. He took out a shell from the slotted into the chamber before snapping it back in place and squeezed the trigger, pointing the weapon in the air. Boom! The gun roared, jerking the buyer's back to his senses. He looked at his dying man and back at Urka, holding the smoking gun and grinned. No fake! Good boom boom! The buyer gave a smile. But that! He pointed at the twenty millimeter shell. Urka was holding at his palms. Forty shells for each slave, Urka replied as he played with the shells in his hand. One hundred for one slave. The buyer counted his offer. Fifty for one. Urka offered. Eighty for one. Sixty for one. That's the best I can do. Deal. Urka smiled happily as they spat in their palms and shook hands to seal the deal. Urka watched as another ten healthy-looking slaves were brought in, and he had his men check them out. Say, have interest in joining Cabal. The buyer's eyebrows rose up high ahead of Urka's offer. How? Oh, Oka's smile and started to give the best salesman speech on how to join the cabal. An hour or so later, the buyer once again shook hands with Oka. So long as I bring someone to join and he signs the contract, I can earn a commission of one out of ten. Yes, yes, Oka laughed, and if that person brings in another, you'll earn one-tenth commission of that contract. So, if I get more people to join under me, I can take a cut from everyone. The buyer asked in confirmation. Of course, look at me. Oka showed off his gold rings and a pair of cannon revolvers. Look, every warrior under me can afford a boom-boom, too. The buyers lit up, and he asked, How do I sign up? Here. 
Urka unfold a magical contract for the interested buyer. It'll cost you 20 slaves or 400 pieces of gold for these 10 magnetic health mattresses. The buyer looked skeptical at the mattresses and frowned. Don't worry, you'll make it all back easily. Urka assured the buyer. It's a very worthwhile investment. But I don't have so much gold nor slaves. The buyer frowned. Don't worry, Urka gave him a wink. You can use other stuff of equal value to pay. And if you still do not have enough, Urka lowered his voice. I can give you a loan, seeing that we are acquaintances. Mm, deal. Watching the back of the latest customer with his men walking away in ten sets of mattresses, which the high-ups told him to sell, he wondered if those lumpy mattresses were really that wondrous. Oh well, as long as he hit his sales target, Urka does not really care. With this customer, he'd made forty gold crowns, but he needs to pay half of it to his sales team leader. He carefully removed a notebook and ticked his crossed some sections inside, filling up the sales form. Another three more sales to make, and he would make the top sales employee of the month, and he would be given a big reward. Urka rubbed the coarse hands together in glee, wondering what reward he will get. He gestured his men to start preparing the transportation of slaves that he carefully rolled the magical contract signed up by the customer earlier and the other IOU contract in a scroll case and started whistling away as he watched the slaves getting transferred into a wagon pulled by a giant wind wolf. Once the slaves and trade goods were loaded up, Urka sat on the wagon with the driver who prods the wolves that started moving. They exited the shed-like building and entered the main street of Sin City, which the members of the Cabal strangely named it as. It was a wonder to Urka when he first came to work under the Cabal. He was here when those short-eared softskins declared a city to be built here in a short time. A small army of slaves labored non-stop to build the City of Wonders. Brick buildings no taller than three stories lined the main streets, with the first floor acting as a shop or storefront. The city was built circular, with a stronghold of cabal right in the middle of the city. Buildings expanded out from the circular curtain wall that surrounded the stronghold, and each district was further divided by a ring road. Four straight causeways connected the ring roads together and the city gates. The outer walls were still in the midst of construction, and Urkan knows that once the walls are completed, it'll become near impregnable by enemies. As each ring's entrance was a checkpoint guarded by burly Orkins, dressed in some sort of bulky heavy armor plate that covered them from head to toe, they each held a revolver rifle that is the same in design as the revolver cannon, but with a longer barrel, a hand guard, and a buttstock. The wagon stopped next to the checkpoint, and one of the Orkins came over swaggering. Oh, look, the great Urka! The guard lifted his featureless faceplate up and his helmet and gave a toothless grin at Urka on the wagon. What do we have here? The usual, Urka ignored the sarcastic tones of his fellow Orkin. Slaves and goods to be delivered. The guard gave a wave to the rest who came over and started to check the cargo. So, great war chief, how's life? The guard jeered. I am no longer a war chief, Urka growled. Better than you all standing in the cold. Oh, I've forgotten you are no longer a war chief. The Orkin guard dramatically patted his armored head. Sorry. <laughs> Urka's hand reached for his weapon, but at the last second he controlled himself and forced a faint smile at the guard. All done here. Um. The guard looked disappointed that Urka did not rise to the bait and rudely waved him through. Have a nice day, yeah? Urka nodded to his driver and the wagon creaked forward, passing by the checkpoint and into the second ring of the city. 
The city's current consisted of three rings of districts. The first ring of district that is closest to the stronghold was for the trusted warriors and followers of the Cabal. The second ring, which Urka had entered, was the industrial ring, where storehouses, workshops, and other manufacturing industries were located. The third ring consisted of all commercial and residential buildings. Once the war for the third ring was completed, Urka had heard rumors that the foreman that they would be building another ring for residential. His wagons pulled into the yard where several other similar wagons were parked, and the walls were huddled together for warmth under a shed. Dozens and dozens of slave workers were unloading goods from the wagons, while the Orkan foreman stood to watch with a whip on his belt. The driver parked at one marked lot, and Urka hopped down and headed towards the smaller, squarish building next to the large storage houses. As he entered the building, a blaze of the fireplace immediately warmed him up. Urka! Someone called him as he was about to go hand in his work contracts for the day. A short-eared soft-skin dressed in a wooden tunic with long pants waved him over from the door of his office. Urka entered the room and removed his leather cloak before sitting down on the offered chair. My man, how are sales today? The short-eared soft-skin asked as he poured a mug of steaming tea for Urka. Thanks, boss. Urka accepted his hot tea offered by his boss. Boss Leung, I sold off another three contracts of health mattresses and five sets of boom-booms. Good, very good work. Leung Chong-Kok, formerly known as Maintenance and Operations of UNS Singapore, grinned wildly. You will make top sales for the month soon. Very good. Urka smiled back happily and sipped his hot bitter drink. Boss Leung, does those health mattresses, or whatever they are, works as you said? Ha! Chong-Kok smiled and leaned back in his chair. What do you personally think? Um, Urka debated on should he tell the truth or not. No? <laughs> His boss barked out a laugh. You are right. It's all crap. Huh? Urka looked confused. But uh, why will so many people still be willing to buy? My man, the hook here is not the mattresses, but the lure of having other people make money for you. Chongkok sipped his tea. To us, we take 90% cut of all items sold, and they, upon finding someone to join under the team, will take 10% of the recruitment or sales fees and another 5% of all future sales and recruitment by the members of his team. Chong Kok drew a pyramid-like chart on a piece of paper. Look, we're up here. He points to the tip of the pyramid. Everyone below us will make money for us. Chong Kok pointed to the bottom of the part of the triangle. We don't have a care of what items we sell, as long as those people believe that they can make money by buying from us and selling them to other people. Aye, I see. Oka furrowed his brows as he tried to grasp the concept. <laughs> don't worry about it, his boss said. Just work hard on hitting your sales target, and I can assure you, you will be rich. Oka nodded and stood, excusing himself as he headed to turn to the invoices and contracts. Chong Kok stood up and patted Oka on the back constantly praising him for his hard work. As the door closed behind Urka, Chongkok gave a piece of parting advice to Urka. Pyramid schemes always work on greed. End of chapter Chapter 213 Shocking Changes Far Harbor Dozens of white-masted ships sailed majestically into the stone pier under the watchful gun forts covering the harbor. A boat without a sail and oars raced ahead of the flotilla, escorting them into the docking piers. Fleetmaster John stood in the bow of the ship and took in all the changes that had occurred since the previous time he was at Far Harbor. 
Those walled-off areas have were taken down and large barn-like structures stood in their places. The second stone pier was constructed at the other side of the harbour with strange yellow-coloured structures that looked like the ribs of some monster towering over the piers and the docks. The harbour also had more ships and activity now compared to before, and several small fishing boats and barges were docked with the newly constructed pier. A couple of the fishing boats were even returning to unload the cargo at sea product that they caught offshore. The strange magical boat did an amazing 360-degree loop that shocked these new sailors in the arriving ships and never came to Far Harbor before. The PT boat painted in a dazzle of camo paint scheme of greys, white, and black powered past the line of sailing ships with ease against the wind and currents. The tiny crew on board gave a friendly wave before the magical boats sped past the ships that left most of the sailors stunned in wonder. The Isle ships slowly docked one by one against the pier and a welcoming party headed by the princess waited patiently for them to disembark from their ships. It appeared to Dijon that each time he came to this place there was something new and exciting waiting for him and he doesn't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing. Fleetmaster Dijon smiled when he saw who was in the welcome party and quickly stormed down the gangplank eagerly and gave the gentleman bow to the princess before taking back her hand and kissing it. My, you look as gorgeous as ever, princess. Shireen, dressed in a black turtleneck sweater and long woolen skirts, gave a false smile and tactfully kept her hands behind her back and gave a curtsy. Welcome to Far Harbor again, Fleetmaster Dijon. How was your trip here? Uneventful, your navy must have done a very good job of defeating the goblin pirates. Dijon gave a dramatic sigh. But the weather is turning bad and soon the seas will be closed for the rest of the winter months. I guess I'll be staying here until the weather is fair again. I, uh, I see. Shireen politely smiled and felt a headache coming. We have plenty of entertainment and activities here that should keep you pretty occupied. <laughs> I'm sure. I'll take your offer then. Dijon gave a wink at Shireen who acted like she didn't see it. Oh yes, I bring gifts from you from the lands afar. He turned and gestured to his men to bring the chests over. Pearls from the deep seas, gemstones from the fire isles, and the finest and the rare colored silk from the emperor's silk lines. Dijon proudly showed off the gifts to Shireen, who appeared to be stunned. All of you, Dijon gave his most charming smile. I, I thank you, Shireen sighed inwardly, but I can't accept such valuable gifts. Take it as a token of my, um, appreciation, Dijon insisted strongly. All of these will only be wasted on the others, but could only truly shine in your presence. <clears throat> An aide coughed from behind Shireen. Fleetmaster, why don't we adjoin to another location with the refreshments first? Dijon looked at the female beast girl behind Shireen and frowned. The beast girl quickly said, The princess has been standing here for some time in the cold and is not very good for her body. Ah! The hostility in Dijon's eyes faded as he quickly nodded and agreed, Yes, yes, too much cold sea wind is not good for the body. You must be cold. He reached out to take Shireen's hands when the beast girl quickly bundled Shireen up in a thick coat. The John looked at the half-stretched-out hand and coughed to cover his embarrassment. Shireen winked in Kagar and mouthed a thank you at her quick actions. Kagar sighed inwardly and wondered why she'd listened to Billy at work City Hall. This group of satyrs doesn't seem to have any good intentions to the princess. She felt her tail standing by the way the guy was looking at the poor princess. Fleet Master to John, why don't you introduce your sweetheart here to us? A silky voice came from behind John. 
A tall, striking-looking woman with a raven black hair, covered in a long coat made of fine wolf fur, walked out over the white, ornate jacket of the office staggled on her shoulders. She blew a puff of smoke out and a slim smoke pipe that she had in her fingers. Another person stood next to her, a shorter by half and a head and a monocle stuck in his left eye. His carefully groomed and waxed moustache stood out against the pale skin. A similar ornate white jacket draped over his shoulders, and he hugged a leather case to against himself. Ah! The Jean's expression turned serious as he gave the introductions. This is Second Fleet Master Megan Loser and Fourth Fleet Master Akron Willer. I am Shireen Goldrose, City Governor here. Shireen smiled and gave a curtsy to the other two VIPs. Welcome to our humble little place. Humble? Megan took a drag of her pipe and blew the smoke at Shireen's face. This place doesn't look humble at all. <clears throat> Kagar coughed and quickly suggested. Let's all retreat indoors out of the cold and have some refreshments. I think everyone's tired from the long journey here. Megan turned to look at Kagar, who flattened her ears in an intense stare. What a cutie! She reached over and rubbed Kagar's head. Lead the way, girl. Kagar felt a chill down her spine at the way Megan looked at her. Like a boa eyeing her meal, she shivered and quickly moved out of the range of Megan, who looked slightly disappointed. Shireen pasted her smile on her face, but she felt her blood pressure rising. What a witch, she thought to herself, but she kept on smiling as she was a host and they were guests from afar. Please board this cart, Shireen invited the VIPs to sit inside the five-seater open-top electric cart. The two feet masters looked with curiosity at the cart and asked, how does this thing even move? You push it. <laughs> Dijon laughed at Megan's skeptical look. It's a wondrous magical wagon. He gave an air of superiority and sat down on one of the comfortable seats and sighed in comfort. Akron gave a shrug and climbed into one of the seats. He gave a seat a couple bounces and pats before nodding in approval. Before he turned his attention to the harbor, seemingly ignoring everyone else. Please take a seat. Shireen gestured again to the cart where everyone was waiting for Megan to enter. Megan gave a huff and gingerly climbed into the seat next to Akron, the seat molding to her contours once her full body weight had settled down. She leaned back and put her face in an indifference despite feeling the material of the seat and support comfortably. So far, everything here appeared to be out of the ordinary. If what Dijon said was true, these gold-rose peasants had built this whole harbour up in not a year's time. Shireen sighed and sat down next to Dijon, who looked quite excited and happy, while Kagar took the seat next to the driver. Let's go. A similar vehicle with armed soldiers followed the cart as they sped down the pier and towards the harbor's civic center. Along the way, Akron and Megan appeared to be visibly surprised by the smoothness and the speed of the magical cart. They held tightly to the handrails and looked at the surroundings with wonder as they passed the strange yellow rib-like structures that turned out to be cargo cranes, but in a much larger and grander scale. Finally, the cart stopped and the grand-looking buildings with large circular facade that took two thick black sticks, one long and one short and fat. Another thin stick appeared to be constantly moving. What kind of sorcery was this? The John snickered at both Akron and Megan's expressions and said, Don't be a country bumpkin. Come on, there are more interesting things to see later. <laughs> Inside the reception room, Akron and Megan marveled at the grandeur of the furnishings and decor of the huge room and sat down on comfortable sofas. The temperature appeared to be just nice, not too hot or cold, prompting them to remove their jackets and hand them over to the servants who collected their coats. 
Megan nodded to herself as she observed her surroundings, thinking that this place was designed and made to impress people. She wondered how much gold the princess spends on just to maintain this place. So, we all heard about the magical and wondrous things that your kingdom of rebels are making, Megan said as she leaned back in the comfy sofa. Dijon has been telling us all sorts of stories about here and of you too. Dijon gave an embarrassed cough. Well, if you saw what a single ship could do against a fleet, you'd be amazed, and those flying things of theirs. Megan smiled, knowing that Dijon likes the princess, and she can't resist teasing them both. So, you want to propose an alliance between the two kingdoms? Irene sat up in surprise. An alliance? With the Isles? Dear Dijon here came back, taking about demon-powered weapons and flying machines. Megan continued, He seems to think that as long as we ally with you all, the Isles can't be taken to new heights. That is why I and Akron are here to take a look and see if it's worthwhile for an alliance between the two kingdoms. Megan stood up and walked to the refreshments table and gestured to Kagar. Now, my cutie, tell me what is all of this? Kagar sighed and went up to the buffet table and started introducing the food and drinks available. Quickly forgetting about why, Megan looked at her as she viewed a buffet spread longingly. Shireen turned and looked at Dijon. An alliance. You did not speak of this the previous time you were here. Well, on my way back, I thought it over for some time. Dijon smiled. And I think it's good to have a strong ties with the Isles. We can offer you many niceties that you lack. Not to mention, the Empire will also think twice in making any moves against you should they know that we are allied. I, uh, I need to discuss this with my people. Shireen felt surprised. It's too sudden. Yes, yes, we'll need time to prepare for everything to be perfect too, Dijon replied. I think a good time is around spring. Wait, prepare for what? Shireen tilted her head in confusion. Why in spring? Oh, it's for our alliance. Dijon gave a wide smile. The avenue, gifts, invitations, even the clothes to be tailored and other preparations. We can do it here or back in the aisles. Huh? Why would an alliance need all of that? Shireen was feeling more and more confused by the minute. <laughs> Megan laughed while she was holding a visibly struggling and panicking Kagar in her arms. She shook her head, had a complete clueless expression on the princess's face. The John is proposing an alliance between two kingdoms, and what's more easier for that than in marriage? M marriage End of Chapter Chapter 214 Jealousy UNS Singapore, Captain's Quarters Captain Blake smiled warmly at the image of the girl who was trying her best to explain the advances made by Fleetmaster over the video call. He felt a warm stirring in his heart as the adorable frustration she was having there and wished that he could go over immediately and cuddle and pet her. I don't think we need such an alliance, Shireen stormed, crossing her arms over her chest angrily. It's ridiculous, but on the other hand, an alliance with the Isles will help us greatly. Blake raised his eyebrows before asking in a serious tone. Are you afraid that I can't protect you? No, of course not. Shireen glared back through the screen. And don't you dare say that I have no faith in you either. Blake raised his hands in mock surrender. All right, all right, do what you want, but you are not going to get married to anyone else except me. Shireen tilted her head upwards proudly. Of course, you're mine. Blake gave a curse as he leaned back on his chair and gave a call ended. Damn, Islander wanted to steal his girl. I'll show him who's her man. He reached out and hit the comms, dialing Commander Ford. After a few seconds, the call connected and Ford's saluting image appeared on the screen. Sir? How's everything out there? Blake asked as he turned to the salute. 
Seas are pretty choppy now, and now the waves are measuring about three meters tall. Ford replied with a hint of static. The squadron is en route back to Far Harbor by tomorrow, after the weather clears. How's the ad hoc carrier? Blake asked next. Can you make it back earlier? The matador sails well, but is quite a witch to maneuver. We can tank the weather if needed, Ford frankly said. It's quite stable platform and rough seas. I can only pity those floating wreck if they push through the weather. <laughs> the matador so far works as intended to be a tender for floating planes and dragon ops over the sea. Ford continued his report. Only then with the twin hull being the inferior grade and teething issues here and there. I say that the ship is fair in this success. Good. If the matador works as intended, we can plan to construct a few more and act as amphibious assault ships with dragon and seaplane support for the future, Blake said. It can also carry up to four of the PT boats, allowing us to expand the operation range of the fast attack craft. Ford nodded. I plan to have the large surface vessel and an additional escort of the matador first. Just having the float and wreck as a single escort is seriously overworking the crew of that ship. Plan your manpower properly, Blake said. We only have so much personnel to spread amongst all the divisions. Got it, Ford acknowledged Blake orders. So how did the VIPs from the Isle take the Fav Harbor? God damn it, Blake cursed when Ford mentioned the Islanders. Huh? Did I miss something? Ford asked in a curious tone. What happened? That fricker Dijon proposed an alliance of marriage to Shireen, Blake growled. He has the bloody gall to do that, jerk. <laughs> what? Seriously? Ford laughed. Wait, is that why you want my ships back earlier? Blake cleared his throat uncomfortably. It's just a show of force to the islanders. <laughs> Ford laughed harder. Whatever you say, Captain, but as a fellow officer and a friend, I'll make full steam back to provide some support fire for you and Lady Shireen. <laughs> Blake rolled his eyes. Just don't make it too flashy. Don't worry, all the men support you two. Ford grinned and saluted, but before that connection cut off, Blake could hear him yelling at the bridge crew to make all haste to rescue the captain and his girl from invaders of the heart. What the frick? Far Harbor Civic Center. Shireen puffed out her cheeks after the call ended and stood up in the console where the harbor master had graciously offered her his office to make the video call. That didn't go too bad, she thought. She gave a pout and hoped to see Blake getting jealous over the matter, but it seemed that he wasn't really affected by it too much. Shireen sat up in her office for almost twenty minutes to sort out her thoughts before she snorted and left the office in a huff. Humph, <laughs> men... She pushed open the doors and entered the reception hall, finding the three fleet masters gathered around the coffee table while lounging on sofas. When Dijon saw her, his normally frowning expression turned cheerful. Shireen sighed inwardly, wondering how he was going to reject him nicely without damaging relations between the two nations and still be able to get an alliance with the Isles. That was fast. Megan stretched out on the sofa like a snake. She eyed Shireen over her long lashes and asked, So what is it that verdict? Are you willing to marry our dear friend Fleetmaster Dijon and ally with us? Shireen looked at the three Fleetmasters eyeing her like a piece of meat and felt uncomfortable chilled out her spine. Even Kagar beside her also hissed softly as her ears and tail stood up in agitation from the intense pressure given off by the three Fleetmasters. She looked at Dijon who appeared to be flexing his muscular body at her while the quiet Akron sat there and quietly observed Shireen with a critical eye. Is this the only way to ally with the Isles by marriage? 
It is the fastest and easiest way, of course. Megan gave a predatory smile and winked at Kagar on the side, whose hair stood up on ends as she quickly hid behind Shireen. It'll also be easier for the council and the people to accept the alliance. And I can offer you anything you want, my dear princess, Dijon smiled. All the treasure in this world. Shireen borrowed her eyebrows and winced from the forceful way Dijon was asserting himself. The Empire. We can force the economy to collapse easily, Dijon boasted. We have our own merchants in all of their markets. It'll be easy to make them unable to wage war against you. If that was the case, why haven't you all stopped the Empire in the first place, and none of all of the horrors and tragedies would have happened? Shireen fumed in her mind. I am of a considerable rank in the Isles too, Dijon self-promoted himself. I have my own fortress and cartel of merchants all over the New World. I promise to treat you well. Dijon continued, we have equal status and you can keep living here in Far Harbor, and I will not interfere with the politics of your country. Gagar gave a snort as she heard what Dijon was offering the princess. That isn't really impressive, you know. Dijon frowned when he heard the Beast Girl's retort. Is there anyone out there that can offer you more than what I can offer you, the princess? Of course, Kagar jerked her head up proudly. The captain! He is way more powerful and can make all sorts of amazing things. Orcs, goblins, trolls, wolves, and even ancient volcanic dragons bow before him. What? The three fleet masters looked at each other with doubt, thinking, is there such a powerful being in existence? Ha! <laughs> you are just over-exaggerating. Is he some kind of ancient hero? What? You don't believe. Kagar's eyes narrowed in contempt. He can slay dragons and heroes with the push of a button. Ah! Megan brushed Kagar's words aside with a wave of slim hands. You're just a little girl. What would you know of this world? Me? Kagar growled angrily. Let me tell you how great I am. I'm a former guardian priestess of Beast City. Her words appeared to shock the three fleet masters. You are the guardian of the Beast City. Yes. Kagar stood proudly, puffing out her chest. I protected the whole beast city. But sadly, the Empire invaded us with a sneak attack. Ha 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 and Megan laughed as Kagar's words fell and Akron's gave a twitch of his mouth. That's the funniest story we've ever heard. You, the Guardian Priestess. <laughs> You're just a weak little cat girl. Shireen frowned and spoke sharply. Enough! It is your choice to believe her words or not, but you do not make fun of my people. Megan wiped her eyes and controlled her laughter. It's so funny. I guess people who are weak stay together. I don't know what you see in her, Dijon. Princess, I can assure you that I am the most suitable candidate to be by your side. Dijon ignored Megan's cutting words. You need to stop having an illusion that you are strong, even if you have those strange short-eared people and weapons with you. Stop deluding yourself that whatever this captain guy is, he can grant you protection from the Empire. The John stood before Shireen and said, I can offer you everything and more than that captain guy can offer you. Shireen looked at the serious eyes of Dijon and was about to reply when suddenly a loud droning roar sounded outside the building. Frowning, she looked out at the full height of windows and saw the Valkyrie hovering right outside the windows. The power of the rotor engines rattled the glass windows as the pilot skillfully hovered the Valkyrie over the entrance of the civic center. The fleet master stood up in stupefied surprise and the massive construct of hovering and roaring away. The streets before the civic center cleared as the Valkyrie hovered and lowered before settling down with the rear ramps facing the entrance of the civic center. 
Shireen, without a word, quickly left the room with the others in tow. She half ran and pushed past the gawking workers in the civic center and appeared in front of the entrance steps with her heart beating rapidly. As if waiting for her to appear, the two dragons blew thunder and Rastras landed next to the Valkyrie, flanking it. The rear ramp slammed open and the two ACIG golems stormed out of the troops of heavily armored marines marched behind. They stopped in unison, where the crash of boots bore a silent order and turned to face inwards in perfect raid square drill. The three fleet masters gawked like the others as they watched the perfect movement of the marines. Dijon had met a few of the marines before, but it was his first time he saw them in heavy armor and weaponry. The strange alien look of the Valkyrie had a fleet masters in amazement as they wondered how the clearly man-made construct could fly. At this time, a tall figure dressed in a trench coat with a pea cap walked out of the ramp with a slight limp. As he appeared, the lions of soldiers snapped to attention. Even the two dragons at the side appeared to be standing still like statues, eyeing the crowd with all seriousness. Shireen walked down the steps of the civic center with people parting out of her way and met the short-eared man in the middle of the soldiers. Why are you here? I thought you had a lot of work to do. How did you come so fast and why the entourage? How can I sit still while someone is trying to steal my girl? Blake replied with a grin. Well, I got you a couple of dragons and a company of marines to back you up if someone tries to take advantage of you. Blake reached out and pulled her into his arms and kissed her, much to her surprise before everyone. The crowd loudly wowed and cheered as even the solemn-faced marines cracked a smile at the scene. Ruthunder looked wide-eyed in excitement and thumped his tail happily against the harbor ground, while Rastras looked around suspiciously. Where's the cheese fries? End of chapter Chapter 215 My Stance the colony, City Hall. The corners of Blake's mouth twitched when he looked at the three VIPs from the aisles looking around their surroundings with gaping mouths. Shireen gave him a playful pinch on the side of the stern look and whispered, Don't laugh at our guests. Blake looked at the princess and smiled, wrapped an arm around her slim waist and squeezed her to his side. Did I tell you that you look gorgeous today? No. Shireen blushed before she gave another pinch to his hand. Don't change the subject. He gave an evil wink and walked up to the three islanders, still gawking at the surroundings. After the call with Commander Ford, Blake had immediately roped in the Air Force and Marines to for some help. When Master Sergeant Pike found out about the purpose of the escort, he immediately turned out an entire battalion for support, while the Air Force sent over Valkyrie and a squadron of Cobras. The word that the islanders are here to call the princess's hand for marriage spread rapidly, and when Blake appeared in the flight decks, he paused in surprise. The entire fully armored battalion of marines, with all of their organic support, had formed up in a parade formation, with two dragons hanging around at the back. Master Sergeant's pike voice roared out, Battalion! Attend! Shun! From the storm of boots echoed through the launch deck, even the techs and support crew stood to attention following Pike's command. Sir! First battalion reporting for duty, sir! Pike's parade square-powered voice shook Blake awake. Damn, Top. Blake walked up to Master Sergeant. Is there a real need for all of this? Sir, the enemy is already at the gates, Pike grinned. If the Earth Command knew that I mobilized an entire battalion to show for a girl, Blake grinned. Ah, frick it. I'd show them what happens when they hit on my girl. Hoorah! Blue Thunder, why are you here? Blake asked as he looked at the dragon with a silly-toothed draconic smile plastered on his face. 
Um, Captain, I <clears throat> heard that the princess is <clears throat> in trouble. Blue thundered, muttered out quickly. I came to offer my services. Rushdraws on the side rolled her eyes up dramatically and said, He means he wants to go see the love drama that's happening between that you and the islands. What? What? No! Ruth under panic and swiped his wings to cover Rastraris' serpentine head. No! We're here to give you all our full support! He thumped and puffed his chest. Go, Captain Blake! Rastraris' voice came out muffled from under Blue Thunder's wing, and he promised me cheese fries. Blake laughed and shook his head as he walked up the ramp in the Valkyrie. Weird dragons! So, what do you think of my city? Blake asked the three islanders. It's unbelievable, Fleetmaster Megan cried out. How did you build all of this? Are those glass? How much glass can you produce? How did you rise those buildings so tall? What are they for? Megan spewed out a torrent of questions. Her initial composure had disappeared when she first saw the strange short-eared appeared from the strange flying construct. What happened next threw her mind off as they rode on board the flying machine. A goblin dressed in an oversized shirt yelped at them to buckle up tight and use the puke bags, should they feel the need to vomit and not dirty his decks. The John had to restrain himself from chopping the head off the foul-mouthed goblin, while the spotted green and blue uniformed soldiers snickered at the side. They had flown before on a dragon, but this was totally unlike flying on a dragon. They sat strapped down on the seats facing each other, and the sudden vertigo from taking off the Valkyrie incited a yell of fright from Dijon, making the soldiers laugh more. Blake and the princess disappeared through the door to the front, where they were not seen throughout the whole flight. The tiny windows offered a view of the show of the terrain skimming away rapidly, and after a while, suddenly they found themselves falling as the Valkyrie did a rapid descent and pulled up sharply just before touching down on the landing pad. As Megan and the rest exited the scary flying machine to see themselves inside a massive cabin, to their amazement, the cabin looked man-made and was brightly lit by globes of bright white light. Hundreds of similar uniformed soldiers were formed up before them, and they saluted as one when Blake and the princess appeared behind. After that, they were given a quick tour of coming out of the city in a similar magic wagon that they had ridden earlier and stopped before a grand-looking building overlooking a huge fountain and plaza. Blake waved her questions away. It's hard to explain about all the details, but yes, we built all of this with everyone's help and power. Mentally, Megan calculated her merchant mind and estimated that it would probably need a quarter or maybe even half the Isle's entire treasury to build the city, with the type of materials used. She darted a glance at Dijon and sighed, thinking about how he offered his wealth to the princess. How could he even compare to the wealth this person has? She frowned, and she wondered if the Empire's rumors that the princess had allied or sold her soul to the devils were true after looking at the strange and amazing contraptions around her. As for Dijon, he was dumbstruck on the entire journey. He had wrongly assumed that the whole of the princess's people were all living in Far Harbor, but upon reaching the city, he was totally wrong. Like Megan, his merchant's mind automatically took in the cost of the rarity of the materials used to build the city, and he was stupefied by the amount of gold and mound power needed to build such a city. The first sight of the towering walls had him in awe of fear, wondering what monsters are there that needed such tall and thick walls. The scale of such a project would be enormous and time-consuming, not to mention a large number of workers would be required but when he asked about it, the princess just said it took them only four months to fully construct it from base up, and another two months to fully furbish it from zero deaths in the workforce. 
zero deaths and within the season to build such a massive undertaking which totally unheard of by the islanders. The marvels of the surprises kept showing up one by one the more they looked around. Even the normally quiet Akron with an expression of shock, and he was even more excited when he saw lorries carrying goods moving up and down the roads. Those wagons! They carry goods, yes! Akron excitedly asked Blake when they were touring the city. Can we buy them? After the exciting afternoon, the trio had lunch and the princess and the captains inside the city hall. Several exotic dishes were served to the islanders who found the dishes very different from what they had ever tried. There were even sweet desserts that, near the end of the full-course meal, where Shireen happily chowed down on a cup of chocolate pudding. Blake waited till everyone had cleared their plates and waiters filled their glasses before he said, On the topic of an alliance between the Isles and the Princess, I believe there's a small misunderstanding here. First, the Princess is not the ruler nor the final decision-holder here. Blake looked at each of the islanders. Second, this nation is also not under her rule. It is under my direct rule, and she is part of my people. Thirdly, she is my fiancée, Blake stated out pointedly, and gestured to Dijon, whose face thundered, so there will be no alliance by marriage. Fourthly, while we appreciate an alliance between our two nations, it doesn't mean I need an alliance with you. Blake bluntly pointed out, I have enough military strength to defend my people, and if required, to wage war directly at the Empire, should the need to do so arise. And the last point, Blake continued, I'm sure Fleet Master Dijon has informed you all that we, short-eared people, are not really demons. We are just people from another place. While we welcome the trade between the two countries, it doesn't mean that we can't survive here without your trade. I hope that you can ease whatever thoughts and questions you have in your mind. Blake smiled and stood. Now I must leave you all here. I have a crap ton of work to finish. I'll let Shireen take over as a host for your stay here. I hope that you enjoy your stay here. Goodbye. With that, Blake kissed Shireen on the cheek to leave the room, leaving behind an awkward silence. Shireen rolled her eyes at the way Blake had delivered his stance on the aisles and even earlier in the morning told her to try and not strain the islanders' relationship with them. This was like telling them to fark off and don't touch my things. Shireen sighed inwardly. But she felt a bittersweet and happy inside her heart as she thought of how he came immediately to assert his authority and declared that she was his. <laughs> Shireen, personal communicator, peeped and she saw the message blinking. After reading it, she smiled and said, Well, my people have arranged suites for you to stay here, and I will have my people direct you to your rooms. Feel free to ask my people for any assistance that you require. If you need to talk to me, I'll be inside my office. Shireen stood up and smiled before leaving the trio alone inside the dining room in silence. Surprisingly, it was Akron, the quiet one, that broke the silence. It appears we underestimated the people here. Whether, if they were working with demons or angels, their abilities and strengths are far greater and beyond our understanding, Akron gave his thoughts. The Empire might not be their match after all. Yes, Megan nodded and sipped the sweet wine before her. In terms of goods and production, she twirled the wine in a glass before flicking the wine glass with her finger. The glass chimed in a sweet tone. It appears to be very high quality. They appear to have a very strong economy to be able to build a whole towers with glass. Megan continued, the people here also appeared to be very motivated. Their navy is very powerful, as I had reported, Dijon added next. Her sailors' ships and boats of theirs can accurately destroy ships at a distance that the eye can barely see with those thunder weapons of theirs. 
I'll be wise for us to have a good relationship with them, Akron said. If we can get those thunder weapons and also have a monopoly over the trade with them, it'll greatly benefit our kingdom. I agree, Megan nodded and finished the wine. Poor Dijon, you best give up your idea of marriage with the princess. It's best if you apologize to the captain, too. He has already stated his stance with us. If we go against him, we'll lose out on a lot of things with all the strange technology of theirs. Dijon growled and said, Damn the gods! He has embarrassed me! Calm down, you fool, Akron blurted. You want to start a fight here? In his territory? Dijon grabbed the wine bottle on the table and downed the whole bottle in a single gulp. Damn! This wine is not for men! He tossed the bottle on the table and sat back in the seat in a bad mood. Actually, I quite like the sweet wine, Megan retorted and picked up the bottle, ignoring Dijon's black face. I wonder if they'll sell us some. End of chapter. Chapter 216. Burger Shock. You were Singapore, captain's quarters. Blake sat down before his work desk and triggered a conference call, which he had pushed back to later. Almost immediately, the display screens lit up with multiple images of various officers and in charge. All right, let's start the meeting. Blake waved away the salutes and greetings. Sorry for the last-minute calculation of the staff meeting. Snickers and grins flashed back to him from the images, as almost everyone had heard about the love triangle drama going on. Blake smiled back and said, Before you ask, yes, it went pretty well, and no, the princess is not marrying anyone else. Damn, we hoped that there would be more drama going on. Someone said from the conference and everyone laughed. All right, fun's over. Time for serious work. Blake shook his head at the childish antics of his men. Chief Matt reported first. We've experiencing a massive shortage of rare earth minerals and also some industrial metals. Stuff, neodymium, europium, and etrobium, etc., etc. Despite the name, rare earth metals are, uh, with the exception of radioactive promethium, relatively plentiful in the crust. We need a survey and open up more mines to exploit these resources, as they are needed from refining stainless steel and lasers to even LED's lights. Matt proposed, as for the industrial metals, we are mostly lacking with molybdenum, which is needed for steel alloys and super alloys, and aluminium for almost everyone and the household products to vehicles and even construction. Blake nodded and said, There should be a shipment of bauxite ore from the isles as far harbor. Do what you have to source our minerals for the metal needs. Anything else? Yes, sir, Matt replied. We have completed the train line connecting all major facilities in the colony just in time for the year one founding day celebrations. So far, we only have two train engines completed, and it will be also be unraveled in founding day itself. Good. Next. Our operation to bomb the Goblin City is partially successful, Commander Tommy said. We destroyed or damaged 65% of our targets. Inserted a UAV image of the aftermath of the bombing raid, which bomb craters could be seen clearly against the backdrop of the snow. Here, here, and here, Tommy pointed out several details of the image. These are the primary ship production facilities Naval Intel had identified, but only two of these high-value targets were hit by the bombs. The new FV-1 Mariner has proven to be quite capable as of now. With the external fuel tanks installed, we can extend the range more to directly strike against the Goblin City, Tommy said. My pilots are ready to hit the city again to finish the job. No, Blake rubbed his chin. Let the goblins rebuild. Besides, in this weather, it is too risky to fly, and the pilots also can't see crap, and the refueling squadron is on the way back to Far Harbor already. 
Captain, we can hit them again as long as we install fuel tanks, Tommy insisted. We can destroy the goblins once and for all. No, I want to keep them there. Blake cut off Tommy's words. Let them rebuild, and once they do, we send another raid to bomb them. This way, we can allow the pilots to gain experience and confidence. Dr. Sharon laughed out loud. <laughs> Captain, you want to use the goblins to farm experience for our men? Blake nodded. Yes, Goblin City will be our live fire exercise targets. Tommy grinned. Damn, I didn't think of that. You need to play more games, Dr. Sharon advised. Anyway, we have a nice 0.23 increase in our population. Over 200 babies were born safely in the hospital this couple months, and the number of hopefully will rise. Do we have adequate beds and medical staff? Blake asked worriedly. Dr. Sharon nodded. I've got 27 apprentice doctors and 142 nurses that all have had various experiences in healing or were healers before, but I have problems with dealing with the off-site injuries and illness. We only have very simple ambulance coverage within the city, and the locals are just starting to learn to make use of... Uh, Sharon highlighted her problems. Any off-site injuries take us too long to respond, and I'm hoping to set up clinics with their own ambulance support, or, if possible, an aerial ambulance for rapid rescue work. Buy route a memo to the supply department to get them to issue you with what you need. Blake gave his consent. Anything else? No? All right. The last part of winter is almost here. After Founders Day, the weather should start to go bad. Very bad, Blake said. But this year, we have no enemies at our doorstep, and we have ample food. Everything is kicking off nicely, and we're doing some more than surviving. I want to thank everyone for their efforts in holding on strongly. Thank you. The officers all cheered happily despite knowing that they had no way home. The captain's got enemies. Enemies of the heart. <laughs> Fleetmaster Megan stepped into the suite that the attendant laid her into and was impressed by the exotic decor of the room. She stepped into the living space where the sofa sat around a glass coffee table, facing a strange flat-back reflective dull mirror-like object. A liquor bar sat at the corner of the room where there was a floor to seating high glass doors framed by white curtains that opened out into a balcony that showed off the city in all its splendor. The door led to a bedroom with a large fluffy bed that Megan had pouncing on happily like a little girl. Her chest of personal belongings were neatly packed inside the room without any signs of tampering. The view of the room also showed a nice view of the city and the final door that led to the washroom. She walked out the balcony and stood leaning against the railings and admired the city until the sun slowly sets. The city slowly lit up to her amazement like some sort of fairy tale. Bright globes of orange and white light came alive, lighting the city beautifully. How did they build the city? Megan wondered out aloud. How magical! The doorbell suddenly rang and shook Megan out of her thoughts. She opened the door and saw Akron and Dijon together with the Beast Girl and another short-haired girl, both of them in similar uniforms standing outside. Let's go to dinner, Dijon said grumblingly, while gesturing to the two girls. They came to bring us around the city for food and sightseeing. His mood still appeared to be quite bad, even after some hours. Megan smiled and reached out and hugged Kaga and tried her best to avoid her arms but failed. Please, don't touch my ears! In the end, the whole group clustered into one of the elevators and headed down to the residential tower and appeared out on the street where the minivan was waiting for them. They all piled into the vehicle and the driver drove them off to the restaurant for dinner. Along the way, the islanders glued their faces to the transparent windows and marveled at the lights of the city. It felt totally different in the day when they had at the tour. 
The lights cast a warm glow around the city, making everything soft and warm in the falling snow. How did all of this come to be? Megan asked Agar next to her. What is needed to build all of these wonders? She gave a shrug and said, When my city fell, I was taken as a slave. I was these people who saved me at the end. When I first came here, I too was in a wonder and amazement at what these humans can do, Gagar said. When I first met one of the humans, I thought it was a demon that came to steal my soul. But over time, it turns out that they were not unlike us at all, just more knowledgeable and, um, weird. So the city was built by the humans, Megan asked. It feels like only the gods are able to build a city of wonders like this. Billy spoke up from the other side of the car. Yes, she is amazing how you managed to do this. When I first came here, I was too awed by the scale and how tall the buildings are. The minivan soon stopped and the driver parked the vehicle and the whole group followed the two girls to a place that had walls and a door made out of glass. The islanders gawked at the lavish way the restaurant was built and followed the two giggling girls in. As the islanders' clothing stood out amongst the locals, they attracted a lot of curious looks. After finding a table booth that could seat them all, Trio looked around for a menu or a wench to take their orders, but found none. Why isn't anyone coming to serve us? Kagar and Buddy giggled and said, We make our orders in that counter over there. They turned and looked and saw the small line of people queuing up and looked similar to the Adventurous Guild quest counter. Are we here for food? Why do we need to queue? Dijon asked, confused. <laughs> don't worry, we'll order for you all, Billy smiled. Just wait here and don't go running off. With that, Billy and Kagar joined the queue, while the islanders observed their surroundings curiously. Finding that the people queued from the counter seemed to carry trays of strange wrapped items and large mugs away. Not long after, Billy and Kagar returned and each with a tray filled with all sorts of items. Both girls proudly placed the tray down and handed out what appeared to be a large cups with some drink inside. This is a fizzy drink, that's a strawberry flavored, this is a honey nectar and this is berry apple. Kagar pointed at the different drinks. Billy pointed at the tray where the stack of wrapped items sat. This is Virum meat burger, and this is pico pico meat, and this is muffalo meat. Next on the tray was a large steaming plate of what looked like strips of some kind of vegetable, with some red, white, and yellow sauce drizzled over. These are cheese fries. The dragons love these. The trio looked at each other in bewilderment and mimicked how Kagar and Buddy handled the burgers. They unwrapped the wrapper and saw the thick cut of meat sandwiched between two buns, with some grease and sauce slowly dripping out. Watching the two girls munching away happily, they followed and took a small bite before their eyebrows shot in surprise at the taste. Heavens! Megan took another bite and the taste of the grilled meat mixed with the sweet and sour sauces and the cheese mixed perfectly, stimulating her taste buds greatly. Delicious! Dijon gave a grunt of acknowledgement and wolfed down another two more burgers before trying out the cheese fries. After a few mouthfuls, he declared, this food is truly worthy of the dragons. Akron sat quietly, eating away, while the others praised the food constantly. He carefully took a sip of the strange fizzy drink, and yet he choked. The fizzy bubbles tickled his throat, and the refreshing burst of flavor and sweetness was something that he had never tasted before. Kagar giggled at Akron's expression, which led to Magan and Dijon trying out the drinks as they too spurted at the fizzy drink. But once they had got used to the drink, they sipped away happily, enjoying the refreshing taste of the sweetness. This food must cost a fortune, Dijon cleared as he helped himself to another burger. <laughs> Billy and Kagar laughed. 
This food isn't expensive. We and many others come to eat here at the burger shack almost every day. Akron looked in shock at the food laid out amongst them and silently thought to himself that if the nation was seriously too shocking. End of chapter. Chapter 217. Gossip and Threats. Kingdom of Bluewood, Imperial Capital. Loud laughter and music could be heard from inside the castle. Currently, a grand ball was underway and hundreds of nobles and their guests mingled around, drinking and feasting. The Emperor sat on his throne with a small smile on his face while he watched nobility under him dance and drink. His mood was good as he had just gotten reports of successfully autumn campaign waged by the Rock. The speed of advance into the Kingdom of Mecca had far surpassed his expectations and that made him very happy. He looked at the fat and wasteful nobles who only know how to leech and spend all their time in depravity and his good mood slowly faded away. Suddenly, he felt disgusted and left the ballroom, heading towards his private study. He sat down next to the fireplace with a eunuch poured a glass of fine wine for him and he brooded over the problems of the nobles, yet he needed their influence and wealth to support his campaign to conquer the whole continent. Finishing the glass of wine, he walked towards the bedroom and smiled at the girl shyly covering herself on the bed, waiting for him. His smile grew wider as he saddled the girl and felt her throbbing veins filled with vibrant life force that only a virgin youngsters have, and he enjoyed himself before feasting on that energy of the girl. The Colony City Hall A strange spectacle appeared today in City Hall. People looked on with confusion and humor as two dragons leaning against the side of a municipal building with one of the dragons in reddish-blue scales having his head down and one of the windows. Princess Shireen slapped a sheet of document against Blue Thunder's face as he poked his snout around her office. Can you stop that? Tell me what happened, Blue Thunder begged, giving Shireen the puppy eyes. Did Captain challenge him to a duel? Was there bloodshed? Stop! Shireen sat down on a chair and covered her face in despair. You big fat lizard, why are you so gossipy? But it's juicy news, Blue Thunder grinned. I exercise my right of free speech. Now tell me. No. Shireen stood up and placed her hands on her hips and glared at Blue Thunder, who pleaded more. Go away. But everyone's curious. Blue Thunder pushed her with a snout. Come on, share, share, please. <laughs> Shireen gave up and sat at her desk, glaring at the insistent dragon. All right. Here's what happened. Ristrand sat outside and leaned closer to listen to the conversation between Princess and Blue Thunder. She quickly straightened up when she thought Blue Thunder had noticed her, but returned to eavesdropping when the conversation was blushing. Oh. Ow! Blue Thunder sighed, so touching. You must be joyous that the captain cares about you so much. Shireen looked at the dragon and didn't know whether to laugh or cry or be angry. In the end, she admitted... Yes, it made me feel very touched and happy. <laughs> Blue Thunder giggled. So, did the two of you make out later on? What? Shireen yelped. Blue, now that's crossing the line. Whoops, sorry. Blue Thunder stuck out his tongue. <laughs> but we're all happy they do you two. It's so romantic. How about you, Rastras? Shireen quickly changed the topic. And you two together. Me and her. Blue Thunder jerked in surprise. His massive head nearly cracked the window frame. Oh, sorry, um, no way she likes me. 
How do you know? Shireen asked curiously. I always see you two running around together, up to mischief. I'm under orders to accompany her, Blue Thunder quickly replied. She still doesn't know the, um, uh, proper manners. Huh. Shireen winked at Blue Thunder. Really? Blue Thunder gulped and lowered his voice. Well, I admit that she's got pretty eyes and with glossy scales, but uh, she's too fierce. I like a girl who's nice and sweet, Blue Thunder whispered. You know, like those in the dramas who wait for you to come home with a nice home-cooked meal and gives you a massage after a long, hard day's work. Shireen shook her head at the dragon. I think you need to stop watching so many shows. It's like it's a bad influence on you. Oh no! Blue Thunder quickly defended his dramas. You should join us too. We are just starting season one of Game of Thrones. I heard there are dragons inside. Shireen laughed and said, I think you should look properly at Restras. She might be fierce, but she's very nice once you get to know her. Bah! Blue Thunder stuck out his tongue. She's rude, loud, and steals my share of food and has a princess complex. Suddenly, Blue Thunder's face changed. His eyes bulged out and his mouth snapped shut while his whole body trembled. What is it? Uh, Shireen asked with concern as she saw something was not right with Blue Thunder. Um... A drop of tear formed in Blue Thunder's eye as he blinked rapidly. It's, um, nothing. I, um, gotta go. Nice chatting with you. With that, he quickly pulled his head out of the window and scoured the few scratches against the wall of the window frame. Shireen quickly went to the window and looked out as she laughed and saw Restraz had her teeth sunk into the meaty part of Blue Thunder's tail that she muttered something like, Sir, aloud, I rude, hmm? Sorry, Blue Thunder tried to extract his tail from her mouth, but she clung on tightly. The people around them laughed at the couples fighting in public while giving away for two dragons' antics in the street. Hey, you two! A black-uniformed police officer walked up to them and yelled, Stop disturbing the public! You want me to snap you two with a fine? If you want to have a lover's quarrel, go do it someplace private. Don't damage public property. Sorry, officer, Blue Thunder quickly apologized before turning to Restraz. Do you please calm down? I treat you to cheese fries as an apology, okay? <laughs> Restraz finally released the bite on Blue Thunder before she stomped up in a huff, spreading her wings out and flying off towards the direction of the burger shack, with Blue Thunder giving another apology to the police officer before a sad wave goodbye to the laughing princess and the flying off after Restraz. My pay, my... Hey. Kingdom of Bluewood, Imperial Capital. The Emperor stood up naked and pulled a bell. A small army of eunuchs came into his room, dressed him up, while a couple of eunuchs removed the dried husk up off the bed, before wrapping it up and removing it to be disposed of. He ate a hearty breakfast before entering the gathering hall, where his ministers awakened arrival. His ministers bowed and saluted him as he sat on his throne, nodding. Emperor Varrican ordered them to begin their reports. Monster wave at, famine at, popularity at an all-time high. The reports were done and on, before the final minister said, My emperor, we have conquered almost two-thirds of all tamed land in the new world. Your population is growing weary of war. Will my emperor end his campaign soon? My popularity is due to my success in the army, Emperor Varrican said. If I recall, the army back, where will the people get the cheap labor to slave for them? Will your businesses be able to hold those goods and sell those brought back by the army? Varrican continued. Will the amount of taxes you collect be enough? Will those areas having famine be able to survive if resources were taken from the conquered lands? 
As Varrican spoke, his voice grew louder and louder. Without war, will there be fertile lands for our people to grow food? No, Varrican roared. The army will only stop when the whole land is ours. Then will our people prosper. But my emperor, the demands of supporting the army are straining the treasury. The sweating minister said, we might not be able to sustain another year of war. If that's the case, Varrican smiled, all the nobles will generously donate to the cause. His ministers looked at each other in panic and started to protest. Enough, Varrican cut the protests away. You can afford a party, but you can't afford to donate to the kingdom. Varrican frowned. Maybe I should do an internal investigation on corruption. The ministers paled as they quickly kneeled down and bowed. My emperor, we will be willing to donate generously to the conquest of the whole new world. <laughs> good, good. The Colony Burgershack The Freedmaster Dijon, Megan, and Akron each carried a tray of food and sat down together. After dinner yesterday, they decided to eat here again as they couldn't forget the taste of the exotic burgers. Wine no one has ever taught to place meat and sauce between two bits of buns, Megan asked as she spat into her burger. She tried something new, ordering a fish fillet burger, in which the fillet was coated in something a deep fried till golden brown and paired with a slightly tangy and sour sauce. If we bring this idea back to the Isles, Akron said suddenly, we can create something similar and it will do very well as a business. Both Dijon and Megan looked at each other and nodded, the merchant minds agreeing. But the food recipe. Let's see if we can meet the owner of this place and see if they're willing to sell it to us, Akron said seriously. There are so many interesting business ideas here. Hey, Kagar and Billy suddenly appeared next to them. You guys really like this. Both of them smiled at the trio. Wait for us. We'll go and order some food, too. Do you think those two girls know the owner? Dijon asked as they watched the two girls queuing up to make an order. We can ask them later. Megan crumpled up and wrapped up into a ball before sipping her fizzy drink. Not long, the two girls returned with a tray each, and they joined the trio from the aisles. Say, Megan asked, do you girls know the owner here? Owner, Betty repeated. I'm not sure who the boss is, but I heard that it's one of the human businesses. The human's business? The trio looked at each other and frowned. If it was the local, it would be easier for them to discuss a deal. But with a human, most likely the deal would be harder to close. Yep, Gagar said while nipping away at a burger. These food recipes are all the food from the humans. The islanders looked even more surprised. Not only are they knowledgeable in warfare, construction, magic artifacts, and even food recipes, what are these humans? Megan asked in surprise. Well, the farming and mining techniques and equipment are all taught by them too. Kagar said, they have a massive school that teaches almost everything here. A school? The islanders looked at each other. Are they blessed by the gods of knowledge? Maybe, Kagar said nonchalantly. I'm saving up money so that I can take some courses. I have an interest in the Academy of Science and Magic. Can you bring us to this, uh, Academy of Science and Magic to see? Megan asked. Okay, sure. Kagar nodded before whipping out a black-looking device the size of a palm. Hey, Lest, Kagar spoke into the strange device. Can you come and pick us up at the burger shack in half an hour's time? Okay, thanks. What is that? The trio looked curiously at the black device in Kagar's hand. Why are you talking to it? Oh, this. Kagar grinned with pride and held it up, showing off. This is a personal communicator. End.
of chapter. Chapter 218 Proposal Burgershack A massive shadow descended down rapidly from the skies with a sudden flurry of flapping wings. The dragon nimbly landed on the ground. Rushdraws carefully tiptoed her way around the strange moving machines and stuck her head next to the window opening and tapped the window with a claw politely. Yes, Burgershack, how may I help you? The girl at the drive through window stepped back with surprise as Rushdraws plastered her face close as she could to the window. Manager, the dragons again. I want an extra, extra, extra large serving of cheese fries, Rushdraws said. Also give me 50 of those fish burgers, please. Another shadow covered the fast food restaurant as Blue Thunder's large body swooped over the building before he flared his wings and landed in the parking lot. This was the only burger shack in the city that had a parking space large enough and empty enough for dragons to land. Wait! Blue Thunder yelled in a panic at Restraz. What are you ordering? Cheese fries and fish fillet burgers. Restraz turned her head and snapped at Blue Thunder. And you are paying for all of that? Oh my god! Blue Thunder blinked in shock. How much did you order? A super extra large cheese fries with 50 burgers. Restraz grinned. That's cheap for an apology. Blue Thunder's shoulders slumped down in defeat as he picked his Velcro bag from over his harness. A bag normally would be a good size for a humanoid creature. It was like a small pouch for a dragon. He shook it and heard the sad tingling amount of credit chits in his wallet before he removed a silver black card and lamented his fate, making his way to the drive through Give me another super extra large cheese fries and another 50 muffalo burgers. Blue Thunder carefully handed his credit card over through the window to the girl. You accept card, right? I know. The manager yelled at the one skin and bone boy jerked up from his cook station. Yes, manager? Lionel yelled back as he dropped a frying ladle filled with strips of frozen potatoes into the fryer. What is it? The damn dragons are here. The flustered manager came stomping into the kitchen. They want two sets of super large extra extra cheese fries and fifty fish and fifty muffalo burgers. The kitchen crew, hearing the dragons were here and the order they made, groaned. Stop whining, the manager yelled. Lionel, that means you need to fry twenty bags of fries. I'll get someone to help you. The manager quickly distributed the workload amongst the kitchen crew, who despite complaining were pretty experienced in making dragon-sized servings, as the dragons tend to patronize them. In a way, they felt pride inside compared to the other burger shake branches that they claimed the only dragons dine at their particular branch. Lionel quickly went to the freezer with the trolley and cart they specifically had gotten because of the dragons. He started piling five kilogram bags of frozen french fries onto the cart with a helper quickly helped push the cart to the frying station. Next, he quickly turned on the unused fryers and poured sunflower oil in while his helper tore open the bags of french fries while the oil was slowly heated up with a heat rune. The hardest part of making the cheese fries for the dragons due to the amount of french fries to be fried and the sauces properly poured over them. Four large barrels used to store the cooking oil were used as containers for the cheese fries. The dragons typically returned the barrels for them to be reused. Once the fries were nice and golden brown, they were tossed into the barrel while the cook ladled the cheese sauce, mayonnaise, and some chili. Another kitchen staff would pour crispy fried lard into the barrel. This process kept repeating until all four barrels were filled. The burgers were slightly easier to make. Meat patties were grilled while frozen fish fillets were fried, and an hour later, the meal for the dragons was completed. 
Lionel helped to wheel the packed food out to the dragons who were waiting in the car park. At first, when he first saw the dragons, he was frightened and in awe of like many others. But over time, he found that the dragons were actually very gentle giants and at, and at times a goofball, like now. He recognized Blue Thunder from his bluish-red scales but didn't know the red dragon's name. He saw her few times with Blue Thunder and that was it. The food was packed into crates that would be attached to the bottom part of Blue Thunder's harness. After having secured the crates to the dragon harness and a few more times before, the veteran kitchen staff deftly secured the load-bearing straps under the crates and latched them tightly onto Blue Thunder's harness. Blue Thunder gave a lopsided grin at the kitchen crew and even exchanged a few pleasantries and jokes while the red dragon quietly sat there and judged everyone with a superior expression. The manager personally thanked Blue Thunder for his patronage, while Blue Thunder tried to ask if there was a VIP card or a discount or something, to which the manager sadly said that there wasn't such a thing, but he would refer his suggestion to management. Sighing dramatically, Blue Thunder gestured to the Red Dragon and they left, flying back to the airbase where Lionel heard it was where they had lived. The John, Megan and Akron stared wide-eyed at the scene of dragons flying away from the table where they sat. When the dragons first came, they flinched in by reflex with John going for his sword, which he forgot he didn't carry it out, while Megan had a mage staff appeared out of thin air. Even the quiet Akron, without a weapon, snatched a fork and brandished it, ready to defend himself from the dragons. Kagar and Billy laughed at their poses and quickly assured them that the dragons were harmless. They told them that they were fairly common to see dragons coming here to buy food for themselves, as even for their crew of the airbase. They watched the dragons and even forgot about the appointment with the driver who came and waited for them to finish gawking. Only after the dragons left did they come back to their senses. Draco, Air Force Base, Dragon Pen Straws round as Blue Thunder who was humming a tune while he carefully used his claws to poke several runes on the human device inside Blue Thunder's dwelling. She curled up her body against the wall and rested her head and the forelimbs as she waited impatiently for Blue Thunder to start the projector up. Lights appeared on the wall and Blue Thunder hummed a victory tune before he crawled his way next to Estraz and settled down into a cozy pot for himself. He used his tail to pull the barrels of cheese fries before him and happily sighed as he breathed in the yummy aroma. Restraz frowned and pushed Blue Thunder away from her and unwrapped her burgers while Blue Thunder slurped his cheese fries. Music soon played in the surround sound speakers as the show started and Restraz forgot about her irritation of Blue Thunder as she glued her huge glossy eyes to the projected images on the wall as the intro to Game of Thrones started. The Colony City Hall Shireen looked at the pile of paperwork littering her table and her busy staff regarding projects from the coming spring and other civil matters. At the same time, they have to ensure that the coming founding day celebrations were all in order. Food stalls, performers, the parade, safety, everything had to be planned out and catered for. And also what to do should there be a change of weather, where would the VIP sit and all of that. As the day went on, she buried herself at work till somebody reached over and took a pen that she was holding away. Startled, she looked up and saw Blake standing there with a mischievous smile on his face. What are you doing? she asked, slightly annoyed. I still have many things to do. Look outside. It's dark already. Blake shook his head. Your staff told me that you haven't had dinner and I'm here to make sure that you eat something and not overwork. Oh, is it that late already? 
She quickly glanced at the time and looked outside the window. Oh my, it's almost eight. I told your staff to return home since it's so late. Blake sat on the side of her table. Come, finish up and let's go for dinner. Why are you here? Shireen asked as she sorted and tidied up her documents. Well, I've finished my work and I'm free. Blake smiled before taking a large bouquet of sunflowers from behind. Flowers! Shireen happily giggled. They look very pretty. Well, I think sunflowers fit you very well, Blake explained. Sunny and cheerful. Why, thank you. Shireen tiptoed and kissed the smiling Blake. So, what do you want to eat? Blake couldn't stop smiling at the happy princess. Slime ramen, Shireen smiled, and barbecue. Ugh. Blake took Shireen's coat and helped her wear it as they left the office and headed down to a small shop the Shireen always ate at. Boss, Shireen entered the shop, and quickly, two slime ramen and two barbecue special sets. The owner, seeing the princess and the captain, quickly came over to greet the two. My princess and my lord, it's an honor to have you here. Boss, why so courteous? Shireen smiled. I come here to eat almost all the time. <laughs> the owner smiled wider and quickly added, I'll quickly prepare your food. Please wait. So you always come here for meals? Blake asked as he looked around the small, cozy shop, ignoring the stares of the customers as they started to whisper amongst themselves excitedly. Yes. She smiled as she helped herself to a teapot and poured a cup for Blake. Their slime ramen is the best. Blake grimaced, thinking back to the first time they ate slime ramen, cooked up by their own cook. Well, I haven't had any slime ramen for quite some time. Wait. Shireen paused at the act of pouring tea. Is, is this a date? She leaned closer and whispered. <laughs> Blake laughed. In a way, I guess so. <laughs> Shireen smiled happily before she poured the tea and sipped it. Blue Thunder came down today and he was like some fishmonger's wife, kept asking me about the two of us and the fleet master to John. Ah, I heard something about two dragons appearing at City Hall and causing some ruckus, Blake said. So what happened? Shireen narrated out the whole story and they both laughed at Blue Thunder getting bitten by Ristras, enjoying each other's company. Soon the owner returned with a clay pot filled with red-hot coals and a mesh over it. Plates of raw food appeared and Shireen rubbed her hands excitedly and spread. The owner bowed and retreated, leaving Shireen and Blake alone. <laughs> you should try this. This ant meat, that is muffalo, and this is clawfish. The two laughed and joked throughout the dinner, having a relaxed time and forgetting about all the issues and stress of the day. After the meals, Blake held Shireen's hand and they walked the streets, enjoying the night and watching the flakes of snow drifting down over the city. They strolled happily along the streets, watching the warm orange light from the street lamps cast over the city. They stood at the small rise and looked over the city that glowed in the darkened snow. Blake held her hand and suddenly took the ring out and went down on a knee, before asking in a serious tone, Princess, will you marry me? End of chapter Chapter 219 Friend or Foe Outskirts of the colony, a jeep rumbled in the dark track and passed a rustic wooden gate and fence before the driver stopped the vehicle before a simple wooden cabin with several large barns next to it. The passengers and the driver hopped out of the military jeep and looked around the surroundings in interest. Martley, Mills yelled, are you in? One of the barn doors swung open and a massive three-meter-tall wooden wolf stuck its head out and sniffed the air, before giving off a couple of greeting barks. Has the wolves eaten you yet? 
Bowles joked as he walked over the barn and rubbed the soft bedding of fur of the wolf which happily rolled over and let its belly be scratched. Oh, you like this, don't you? Bartley appeared from inside the barn, dressed in a leather work smock over a locally produced shirt and knee-length work boots. He leaned on a rake against the wall and removed his gloves before wiping the sweat off his face and smiled at Mills. Hey, big guy. Mills went up to Bartley and gave him a brotherly hug. Um, you smell like dog crap and urine. Bartley grinned and shook his hands with Drake, Collins, and James. How's farm life going for you? James asked the former section mate. The air is good, work is tiring, but honest at least, Bartley smiled. Come inside, it's cold out there. Bartley shooed the curious wind wolves back into their pens and closed the barn door before bringing his friends into the cabin. Mills went to the jeep and came back with a trunk of food of supplies. Got some locally brewed piss for you. The cabin was tidy and simply furnished. There were only a single chair and a sofa, and in the end, they just dragged the chair and sofa over to Bartley's bed, and they gathered there. Cheers! The gang toasted each other and took a swill of the bottles of the local beers. The quality of the bottling drinks had improved vastly over the months, and the men finished the drinks quickly. How are you doing? Collins asked as he popped open the trunk and shared some meat jerky around. Civilian life good? In a ways, yes, Bartley smiled bitterly. More freedom. Hey, don't sweat it, Drake patted Bartley's back. You did something good there. You saved those wolves. Yeah, Mills chirped in. Train them well. I want to ride them into battle. James shook his head. Don't worry, we'll be all here for you. Even getting dishonorably discharged from the corps, none of us think badly of you. Thanks, guys, Bartley nodded in gratitude to his friends. Hey, we're brothers. Bowles raised a beer up and yelled, Tonight, we're party. We got meat for the barbecue and plenty of drinks. Kingdom of Bluewood, Imperial Capital. The Emperor sat on his bed and clutched his chest hard, his fingers digging into his flesh. The crescent shape appeared under the skin of his chest and appeared to be alive as it radiated a soft glow through his skin. Sweat trickled down his naked body as he struggled against the scorching pain in his chest. He raised one hand and gripped the sleeping girl next to him and almost immediately the pain lessened and he felt the cooling sensation flowing from his hand to his chest. He looked down at the dim mage lights and he noticed wrinkles on his body slowly disappearing and his skin regaining its supple grow of youth. The pain faded and the crescent shape pushing against the skin slowly retreated back into his body and the glow disappeared. Taking a deep breath, he looked down at his bed where the girl laid, only to find a dried husk curled up in the fetal position. The emperor stood up and walked to a full-length polished bronze mirror and admired his body under the dim lights. He rubbed the red patch on his chest where the nails had gorged into his skin, drawing blood. As he watched, his skin visibly recovered with a blemish. He frowned, wondering why it had been so active lately. It used to only trigger once a year or less, but lately it has been demanding more and more from him. He looked at least twenty years old, but his face and body smiled, knowing that no one suspected him of being over sixty years of age. Not even his own sons can recognize him till the last moment when he whispered to their ears. He remembered the disbelief in the elder son when he ran his sword through his body. Luke, I am your father. His eldest son stared in horror and died with confusion in his eyes, and he wasn't the only one to die that way. 
Only his younger son did he banish away due to some lingering feelings for his mother, and he took his younger son's identity and reunified the kingdom under a new identity. It all started when he was given a piece of the artifact that gave him renewed strength and vitality. He knew his sons were plotting for the throne, and once he died he knew that they were useless. He was given a new chance in life, so why shouldn't he take this chance to unite the whole new world? His useless sons were only interested in power, woman, and wealth, and not the amount or anything greater than he ever was. Only him, the great emperor Dios Bluewood, would be able to hold the people's heart and unite the world under one banner. His youngest son, born out of a favored concubine, was the weakest amongst his brothers. Weak of will and mind, his magical powers were also below average. Hence, he decided to make use of his youngest child for a plot, but in return, for his affections to his concubine, he allowed his youngest to live. With that, he faked his death and assumed the identity of his youngest child, and played the whole kingdom into the palm of his hands. When the uprising by his supposed brothers came, they dismissed him as the weakest and fought amongst themselves, while Dios laughed behind the scenes. He had already prepared his strongest army to only obey him, and when his sons were weakened, he attacked, and in a brief year of suppression, he regained control of the whole kingdom again. Except this time, it was under the guise of Varrican Bluewood, the youngest hidden genius of the only surviving Bluewood lineage. Admiring himself in the game in the mirror, he pulled the bell and a small army of eunuchs appeared. He gestured to the body on the bed, and the eunuchs bowed before removing the body. Bring me another girl. UNS Matador, 78 kilometers offshore from Far Harbor. Commander Ford sat in his command chair and watched the gray skies as waves as tall as a human rose up against the twin hulls of the Matador. Commander, the bridge navigator called out, two more hours to Far Harbor approach. Weather is not looking too good. Got it. Ford replied, and wondered if the captain and princess were okay. Contact Poseidon and get weather updates from them. Aye. The bridge crew radioed back to Naval Command and requested the current weather update. First officer, Ford stood up from his seat. You have the con. Aye, I have the con. The first officer leapt up and saluted Ford as he left the bridge to tour his ship. Ford went down to the hangar deck and found the crew in a joyous mood. Six AF-1NC Cobras rested snugly in the cradles, were stuffed tightly to one side, while the crew ensured that all the items were needed to be offloaded or replaced were checked and secured properly against the stormy seas. He returned the salutes of the crew and walked to the end of the internal hangar deck to the stern of the ship, where the deck had a large square well that opened up to the sea operations well deck. Two PT-1 mosquito boats sat on the unflooded well deck on the secured moorings that could hold another two more PT boats. Ford could see the UNS floating wreck from half an exposed stern from the well decks where the hangar doors were closed up. The well deck could be flooded and the mosquito boats would be floated out to the stern. The Sea Ops deck also stored amphibious warfare equipment for launching attacks or landing on beaches. He headed next to the starboard hull, which also was known as Hull A, while the port side was known as Hull B. Several enclosed passageways connected the two hulls together, which held the ship's crew quarters, storage, mess, equipment, and gym facilities, and also the engine rooms. Each hull had their own independent engine and power rooms. 
the engineering department had split the manpower between the two hulls to oversee and maintain the engines. As he entered the hull A engine room, the temperature rose to a sweltering levels. Chief, he called the Matador Chief Engineer, a newly promoted crewman of the UNS Singapore. Commander, what brings you here? The chief asked as he put down his work tools. How's everything? Ford asked as he looked at the confusing array of dials and gauges. A few bus pipes here and there, the chief reported. Also a few armor plating sprung out of the bolts and leaked here and there. He wrapped his knuckles against the wooden hull and said, These hulls are not designed to take such heavy weight despite having balanced over the twin hull design. The weight ratio calculations are fine, but these hulls are just too old, the chief engineer said. Well, if we can rebuild these hulls from the ground up, the ship design is actually pretty solid. How bad is the leakage, Ford frowned, wondering why no one was reporting an issue to him. The leakage isn't too bad, the pumps are able to keep up, the chief said. Since we're nearing Far Harbor in a couple hours, it isn't a very big issue, nor will it affect the speed at this point in time. Ford nodded. Regardless, I want a damage report on that. The chief nodded resignedly. Got it, Commander. Once we hit the docks, I'll also get the docks to see if we can fix the hulls up properly to prevent more of these issues. Good, Ford replied. Keep up the good work, Chief. Aye. After checking the department, Ford returned to his office and started going through all his reports. Six goblin raiding groups destroyed over a three-week period with a 47% aircraft ordnance and a 62% aircraft fuel on board expended. Zero casualties. Suddenly, the alert buzzer rang and the public announcement system blared. All hands, action stations, repeat, this is not a drill. All hands, action stations. Ford jerked up from his reading and in reflex he ran out of his cabin. The crew ditched what they were doing and quickly moved towards their stations as they had trained and drilled. Appearing on the bridge, Ford immediately asked as he stepped in, What happened? Sir? Sir? Surface radar is picking up multiple contacts. First officer quickly reported, We don't know what it is, but they're big. Bearing and heading, Ward stood over the tactical plot. Report back to Poseidon and Thunderchief now. Aye. Launch the alert cobras, Ford ordered next. Prep half the sea cobras and anti-shipping combat with the rest to air-to-air loadouts. Aye. Order the floating wreck to take up a station between us and the unknowns. Ford gave the next command. Deploy the mosquitoes and have them in close escort duty. The bridge crew scrambled rapidly to Ford's orders while Ford frowned. What can come so near us without us detecting it? Sir, surface radar is showing seven contacts, all twice the size or even larger than the Matador. End of chapter. Chapter 220. Terror of the Deep. Claxons continued to wail, a crewman rushed to the stations. The yellow and green-coated decks swarmed over the cradle planes and readied them for launch. The two alert sea cobras sat in the flight elevator, awaiting their pilots as techs armed the onboard weapons and the trony accumulators kick-started the propeller engines. The alert pilots quickly climbed on board with their planes and the techs helped buckled them in as the elevators cranked loudly, moving up to the launch decks. The platform shuddered to a halt and the techs unhooked the accumulators before guiding the planes to launch cradle. Once the Sea Cobra's wheels and the airframe were properly locked in place, the techs scrambled clear while the airboss that sat in the glass blister on the launch deck overseed the entire flight operations. 
A red signal light turned on yellow as the pilots pushed their engine power to max, the roar of the engines louder than the clashing waves against the ship's hull. The matador groaned as the ship maneuvered its stern towards the wind, allowing the planes to launch with the wind behind them to prevent crashing caused by crosswinds. The signals turned green and a stream catapult fired, super-accelerating the hooked-up planes to speeds of over 200 kilometers in just a couple seconds, tossing the biplanes into the air. The catafighters, dubbed by the crew and pilots, dipped down as they hit the air before rising up. The two planes did a loop around the matador to orient themselves before charging off in the direction of the surface contacts. Seaman Leroy Gemwoods angled his body as he raced through the hatchways, heading towards the sea operations well deck. Several crew members ran past him as they headed towards other locations on the ship. As Nero reached the sea ops well deck, he saw the stern doors had lowered and the well deck was already flooded. He quickly ran to his equipment locker and grabbed his gear, consisting of a harness webbing, personal flotation device and personal arms. He quickly slipped into his webbing and donned the dark blue PFD over and checked his service revolver was loaded before slipping it back into its holster. Other PT crew members were also similarly gearing up and whilst others lugged ammo boxes and weapons on board the two mosquito boats. Neroy quickly boarded the mosquito boat he was assigned to, FAC-04, nicknamed by the crew Mosey, and quickly ran through the series checks on the boat station. His crew members consisted of 13 others and he generally manned the topside twin 50 caliber guns. He quickly helped move the secure stack of olive green camo cases to the storage bins while the engine of the PT boat roared to life. Once all the green was given, the FAC-04 Mosey and her sister boat FAC-05 Lassie reversed out of the sea ops well deck and into the open sea. The thick white smoke spewed out from the funnel of the UNS floating wreck as it pushed its engines to a maximum speed and took up a protective screen before the seaplane tender. Dark figures of crewmen could be seen running along the top deck of the corvette as they manned their weapons from the decks and the commander Ford's vantage point and the Matador's island bridge. Multiple reports came in from all sources, some demanding answers, others asked questions, harrying the bridge crew. Ford! Captain Blake's voice spoke through the image on the screen. What's the situation? Not too sure yet, Ford replied. Our alert coverage just launched and are en route to the location of contacts. Noted, I have scrambled the flight cobras to provide support over your AO, Blake said. Also, Far Harbor defenses are being activated. Thanks, my remaining planes are still being scrambled for launch, Ford frowned. This came at a bad time. We had already prepped all the planes to be ready to be offloaded when we arrived back at the port in an hour or so. Lucky, the two alert cobras were still standing by. Ford shook his head. Bad oversight on my part. Well, not entirely your fault, Blake replied. We just never expected something to appear so close to the port. Our nearest UAV is being routed over to investigate. All right, keep me updated when we have news, Blake said. I'm going to have a talk with these Isles representatives, see if they know anything. The two sea cobras flew side by side and less than a hundred meters across the sea level. The two pilots kept their eyes peeled wide as they approached the location where the radar reported multiple surface contacts. The grey skies and light snowfall made visibility low and the pilots could only see a cluster of small islands as they reached the target area. 
They dived lower and did a long loop, trying to spot anything out of the ordinary in the area, but couldn't find anything unusual. Flying fish to Matador, the pilot radioed. No contact sighted. Over. Matador, the ship replied. The surface targets are right on top of you. Over. Negative. Flying fish one sees no targets. Over. Just as Flying Fish 1 finished his report, the seas below him appeared to churn violently. To the pilot's surprise and horror, the cluster of islands appeared to come to life as mass flippers rose from the water and the islands and swam away from the churning sea. Crap! 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 Flying Fish 1 yelled out in fright as the sight of the suddenly alive islands. Flying Fish 1, we got sea monsters! Repeat, sea monsters! As the two planes pulled into a higher altitude, dozens of wiggling tentacles burst out of the churning seawater and shot towards one of the nearest islands. The tentacles wrapped around the island and the pilots could clearly see three rocks getting destroyed by the rapidly constricting tentacles. A serpentine head suddenly popped out of the island as it roared loudly as its beak like a mouth and four giant flippers thrashed madly as it tried to escape from the pull of the tentacles. Gods of heavens! Flying Fish 1 cried out as he saw what rose from the depths of the sea that the tentacles belonged to. A massive arrow-headed dome with a pair of bony rich claws rose up from the sea. It's more a mess of tentacles that were able to stretch over a hundred meters long. That was drawing the island closer and closer to it. The two claws snipped rapidly in excitement as it drew the creature it caught closer and closer to its gaping maw. The rest of the island creatures cried out in panic and distress as they saw one of their kind about to be eaten by a monster. One of the island creatures even turned around and charged towards the monster, seemingly trying to save the other. Matador Flying Fish 1, the pilot radioed in. What are your orders? Flying Fish 1, Matador. Hold one. Over. The L.I. UAV happily hummed in the air as it flew over the A.O. of the sighting of the sea monsters. The sensors recorded the imagery was fed back to the data servers on board the UNS Singapore, and everyone who was the images were frightened by the size of the monsters. When all those creatures, Ford shuddered at the thought of such monsters were hiding in the depths. Those looked like some kind of giant sea turtle, while the squid-like thing looked like a hermit crab with tentacles. This is freaked up. Vor took a deep, calming breath, order Flying Fish 1 and 2 to maintain altitude and keep observing the monsters. All ships are to maintain a 5-kilometer distance from the monsters, Ford ordered next. Weapons on standby. If that thing shows any aggression to us, fire at will. Sir, do you think we should help those, uh, island creatures? One of the female bridge crew asked. They look kind of, uh, pitiful. Ford frowned and returned the observing to flight between monsters. It clearly has shown that the tentacle monster was an apex predator compared to the giant turtles, who kept baying away in panic. Even the brave giant turtle that attempted to save its friend suffered greatly from the pincher claws of the tentacled monster. Help them, Ford rubbed his chins as he thought to himself, thinking of the pros and cons. Helping the turtles would definitely bring about the wrath of the tentacled beast, and there weren't any returns from the saved turtles, but if you can defeat this monster... It would greatly boost the morale of everyone, and also show off their might to the Isles, thought Ford. Just as Ford was about to give orders, Captain Blake called in. Ford, I spoke to the islanders and shown them the images of the sea monsters. They called the tentacled monster a Kragar, the terror of the deep. 
which the islanders greatly fear. They are known to devour whole ships and convoys. Blake repeated what the islanders told him. It took them a fleet of over twenty warships to defeat one and that creature which just in the infancy, and yet less than half the ships were able to sail home. Very dangerous, and that creature should be a matured monster, they said. The turtle-like creatures are island whales, Blake explained. Island whales are gentle and peaceful creatures and are highly revered as sea gods and is said to be good luck for sailors. They also save many sailors' lives as the island whales travel from place to place on its back. As you can see, it's on its own ecosystem. Ford, I want you to save those creatures, Blake ordered. It'll grant us goodwill with the islanders and not to mention also a way to show off our naval strength. Hmm, don't you mean that you want to just show off to your love competitors? Ford joked while the bridge crew sniggered. Blake cleared his throat loudly and smiled mysteriously. Yeah, as if I needed to that. Ha! <laughs> Ford raised an eyebrow at the mysterious smile of Blake, and he wondered what happened while he was away. All right, seeing you want to show off there what we can do, I assume you invited the islanders for a view. Yes, they are actually here at command, Blake replied. Well, put on a good show for them, for us, all right? Ford nodded and turned to his excited crew. Let's show them what the Navy can do. Flying Fish One, this is Matador, the radio cackled to life. New orders to engage the sea monster attacking the island creatures on the rest of the flying flight have joined up with you. In the meantime, provide artillery observation over. Roger that, Flying Fish One replied in surprise. They were going to attack the huge monster. Are they serious? As they waited for the rest of the aircraft from the Matador to join them, UNS floating wreck sailed to a distance of three kilometers away from the Krogar and opened fire. Shrieking shrouds landed upon the surprised sea monster as it reeled in its weakening prey. It screamed as the shell hammered against its rubbery body and the HE shell exploded. The shock and the flames of the exploding flash fried its skin and transmitted shockwaves into its body, causing it excruciating pain. The Krogar's rubbery hide was thick and strong enough to bounce the shells off of its body, but the resulting explosions badly shook its insides. Its primitive mind was unable to comprehend what was happening to it, except that it was in much pain. It loosed its hold on the prey and wiggled free, trying to escape the pain that came from nowhere. The freed island whale quickly swam away and allowed explosions, while baying even more in panic. Floating wreck, good hit, good hit! Flying Fish 1 cried excitedly over the radio and observed the shells fall. Fire for effect! The guns of the UNS floating wrecked roared again. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.